Radio Mano Papachango. How's it going, Dr. Ryan? Micah Hatcher here. I am a hiking guide out around Moab, Utah. I live in Castle Valley, Utah, which is a community of about 350 people just outside Moab. I spend my days taking people hiking in the backcountry around Canyonlands and Arches National Park and other federal lands here in the Moab, Utah area. Love the show. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. Turn everybody I can on to it. So thank you so much for that, and I'll keep listening. Thanks, Micah Hatcher. <clears throat> All right, if you have a little uh, intro like that you want to send, I'll be happy to play it, uh, although I'm getting way more than I can play, so no guarantees there, but uh, always nice to hear from people. I'm going to play one each episode and uh, until we get tired of it. And we'll see. Maybe we'll never get tired of it. Anyway, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking, people. This is a pretty crazy one. Oh, yeah. And brought to you by you, as so many of them are. Uh, this is a woman named Dorothy wrote to me saying, hey, I see you're in Arizona driving around in the Southwest with Cassie. You guys need to meet my buddy, the rattlesnake guy. And... We missed him on the way to New Orleans. He was, uh, I think, visiting friends or something in San Diego. But when we came back, he was in town. He agreed to meet with us as a favor to Dorothy. He doesn't give a shit about being famous, as you'll hear. This is a guy who doesn't give a shit about a lot of things. Uh, much to his credit, he's wise. He knows most things aren't worth giving a shit about. But he does give a shit about his passions, and I think one of his, certainly one of his deepest passions is the behavior of rattlesnakes. And so he has spent a good bit of his life studying rattlesnakes, not making money on it, not publishing studies trying to become the world's foremost rattlesnake expert, not looking for any sort of external validation at all, really. Just the dude loves rattlesnakes. So why the fuck not? There you go. This is a rare example. Strange. Very strange that this should be rare. But John Porter is a rare example of someone who found a passion and followed it. And just sort of shaped the rest of his life to enable him to do what he wanted to do. You would think that would be common. You would think that would be the most the most typical sort of life, right? Find something that really rings your bell and spend the rest of your life ringing your damn bell. But for some reason, it seems like most of us either never figure out what rings our bells or we figure it out, but then responsibility pulls us away from it and we spend our precious days and nights doing what? Doing some shit that some company wants us to do, moving some paper around, punching a hole in something, 
putting a part in some machine, sitting in a cubicle answering customer service calls from angry investors or I don't know what the fuck. We end up doing something that doesn't mean shit, that we don't enjoy, that makes us unhealthy, frustrated, freaked out, depressed in order to pay for a box to put our shit in that we don't need. And then we're old. There you go. That's life for most people. Not for John Porter, though. John Porter was like, fuck that. I like snakes. I'm going to spend my life hanging out with these snakes and figuring out what's going on. And he didn't give up even when he got bit by a rattlesnake. Not once, not twice, but 15 times. We recorded this conversation sitting in a canyon not far from Bisbee, Arizona, where John lives out in the desert there. Uh, he came, he told us where to camp, and then he came the next morning and we sat in our chairs in the dirt by the river and beautiful place. If you want to see a couple of photos Cassie took uh, of us while we were chatting, go to the webpage, tangentiallyspeaking.com, and you'll see a couple photos there and uh, get a sense of uh, where we were when we were having this conversation perfectly appropriate spot uh not much more to say uh tangentially reading is selling really well thank you for all of you who've been ordering that either through amazon or if you're in north america uh, the united states actually canada doesn't qualify if you're in the united states and you want a full color copy from the limited print edition i got a bunch of those in the garage that mom's sending out uh, I guess we could send them to you wherever you are in the world, but the postage is crazy expensive. So if you order it through my website, you'll get an email from mom saying, hey, you know, if you really want this, it's 20 bucks or something to send it to Australia. Um, but if you order it on Amazon, it'll come uh, with the normal Amazon shipping price. The difference is that the full color version is what we have in the garage and what you get on Amazon is the grayscale version. It's all the same text and same illustrations and all that just without the color. Uh, what else can I tell you? That's about it. Um, keep sending in those, uh, those intros. Keep them under 20 seconds if possible. Just a quick uh, hi from wherever you are. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me who you are. Uh, record it as an mp3 on your phone and just send it off to uh, what is it Christopher assistant at gmail.com and uh, that's it thank you so much for listening to the podcast thanks for telling your friends thanks for the reviews you write on iTunes and the reviews of tangentially reading that uh, people have been putting up on Amazon it's really cool very helpful when people see that uh, you've enjoyed the book and you know and encourages them to get a copy for themselves. I'm working on Civilized to Death. I should uh, be sending it off to the publisher within a week or two. So hopefully they'll love it. And uh, in six months or so, it'll come out into the world and everyone will get angry at me because I'm daring to suggest that civilization has not been an unmitigated fucking gift to humanity and to the world. Again, strange that that isn't the most common idea in the world, but for some reason, people seem to find it offensive. And the more offended they get, the better for me. <laughs> so that's it. All right. Thank you. And uh, this is John Porter, the rattlesnake dude. 
enjoy this conversation. I'm going to play you out with a classic from Bimini Road, who listens to the podcast. I forget the guy's name, but the band is called Bimini Road, and the song is The Mark of a Good Man, one of my favorite songs that's been sent in by uh, a listener. Probably one of my favorite songs anyway, from everywhere. Um, Yeah, and John Porter is definitely a good man, so that seems appropriate. Catch you next time. Gentlemen, I'm sitting in uh, where are we? Miller Miller Canyon. Miller Canyon. Wachuca Mountains. Wachuca Mountains in Arizona, southern Arizona. Yeah, uh, not far from Bisbee. Yeah. Uh, with um, John Porter, who is, among other things, a snake expert. That, that the rattlesnake guy. That that I think that was the subject heading. Yeah. Dorothy put us in touch. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, Dorothy. So this is one of these podcasts that I love, where uh, someone who listens to the podcast sees where I am in the world and sends me an email saying, hey, you're going to be down in the Southwest. You should meet my buddy. And he's a really interesting guy. And it actually happens sometimes. And so here we are. Um, so here's what I know about you from Dorothy. I think she said you, uh, you've you been studying uh, rattlesnakes particularly for yeah. how long? 40 years or something? Yeah, 50 years is, is 50 my oldest years. actual study site. Yeah. Wow. And um, 
you're you're sort of a very minimalist yes living simply low income just following your passions yeah. uh, disengaged yeah, from to, the less you have the more time you have right and that's what it all comes down to so i live as cheaply as i can within yeah. what i want to do what i need to do yeah yeah well that's something else you and i have in common all right my some of my friends have have said that i retired Im- immediately after college yeah. which <laughs> is pretty much how yeah. i look at it that's correct yes. yeah so what's so where'd you grow up what how, how'd all this uh, i was a navy brat until uh graduated high school in virginia virginia then i went to san diego to go to college i had lived there previously and that was one of the locations where uh, be, uh, however, my childhood took place. I don't, I don't play with other kids. I go out into the canyons. I go out into the woods. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. that's that's my love. That's my interest in life. And so, I went back to San Diego, where I had started learning about the canyons and was finding snakes and doing all that. I went to, went there to go to college, and after two years of college, realized that was not for me, and went into the workforce. What were you studying? I was go- I was supposed to be a doctor. My grandfather is a doctor, and I'm the f- the firstborn son, and he's sort of a traditionalist, and that was that was what was happening. So it wasn't your interest to be a doctor; is just a family. It was family, kind of thing. correct. That uh, was my okay. expectations. Right. But they they must have recognized that you had a lot of intellectual capabilities. Yeah. I, I'm the type that uh, I go to class and I listen so I can pass a test. I can get a C on a test, but I'll never get an A or a B unless I'm really interested in the class. Yeah. If I'm not interested, it just it just goes by the wayside. And yeah. so, you know, you take all these tests from time to time and they say, you, you, you have the ability, but you just don't apply yourself. Underachiever. That's correct. There's <laughs> nothing that you're doing that I'm interested in. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was the same. Good on the test, bad on the grades yeah. always. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you so you did two years and you're like, this isn't working. Correct. But yeah, this yeah. isn't me. So you entered the workforce. Went into the workforce. Yeah, it, living at home, uh, I got my $5 a week allowance and I was into music very young hmm. and my, my allowance pretty much always went to buying a new album every week if I could or whatever. And, and what year are we talking about here? Um, this was... Say the uh, the allowance and the albums that began probably when I was in ninth or tenth grade, tenth grade for sure. That's mm. when the Beatles showed up, and I was absolutely hooked on the whole British invasion thing. Uh, so, so I got. So what, how old are you? You're. I'm. Um, I'll be seventy this summer. Really, so I'm sixty-nine. Oh, right shit, now. man! I thought we were about the same age. <laughs> you got fifteen years on me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, it's working for you. What you're doing's working. Uh, okay, so okay, you're about fifteen years older than me. So you're born what? Forty-eight. Forty-eight. Okay, yeah. right. Right, so that so you were in high school when that whole cultural transformation. Yeah, I was one of the most fortunate things in my whole life was that I was at the perfect age for the British invasion and the '60s music that came afterward. Just perfect. Although that's also the perfect age to go to Vietnam. Yes, I uh, I avoided Vietnam because I lost a kidney when I was six years old, oh. and I was uh, I was rated. I, I went up to L.A. to do my physical and stuff, and I was designated a one Y situation, which means they can't or they won't draft me until I'm a, a national emergency. If you know if Russia attacked or something like that, right? But for whatever their reasons are, they don't want to take uh, a high risk because to, to hurt the other kidney would basically kill me. Yeah. So they didn't. I was exempt for whatever that reason was. How did you lose the kidney? Oh, um, 
I was kind of a, uh, I don't want to say precocious child, but I was always I was always doing things and getting into trouble. And we were we were just playing hide and seek. My parents were gone one day, and we were playing hide and seek in the in the neighborhood. And I was running along the rail on the top of a fence. They have the upright posts and the rail on the top. Yeah. I was running along the rail, and I apparently tripped and fell, and I fell onto the side of a sandbox. So I I just cut my kidney in half when I oh, when I fell. Man, wow. And that may have saved your life. Well, the Vietnam thing, yeah. But yeah. again, there, there, there's another thing, and this is, this is an interesting thing about myself, is I like to know all sides of every story. And it is something that I totally missed. Other people did this, and I missed it completely. And I've been, I've, I've been into warriors and fighters my whole life, and it's just something that just passed me by. So to me, it is, it's a good thing. And it's a sad thing at the same time. There's something I did not get to experience in this life that a lot of other people did that when you read Native Americans, they love to fight. I mean, not Native American, Native anybody's. Fighting is is a natural desire in human males for whatever reason. And it goes way back. Virtually all male animals in the... In, in in nature, do some sort of a combat, a fighting thing, a, a testing of one another. Um, uh, I'm not really sure what it would all be about in, in all the different species. But in humans, it just seems to be, um, it's everywhere. All humans fight and always have, from the most primitive to the, to the uh, most advanced. I mean... Hmm. I might push back on that a little bit. Do so. Um, first, first of all, I don't like to fight. Never have. Yeah. Uh, although I studied martial arts, I did it to avoid fighting. Uh, and my favorite martial art is Aikido, which is about resolving conflict without actually yes. hurting anyone yeah. or, or being hurt yeah. yourself. Um, and my understanding of the Native American warfare in most cases is the counting coup was more... Uh, valuable than actually killing uh, someone. Yes, and that's a that has to do with uh, let's say a difference in timing um, in today's society. Like like I believe, I believe that we are now. John's in getting era, tangled up in the cable. We're now in an era of perpetual warfare. Yeah, I think that's what the powers that be, the money people, that's what they want us to to do. This is what Eisenhower warned Kennedy about. Sure, a military this is coming. complex. You got to do something about it or whatever. Yeah, and of course, yeah. Kennedy was killed, and who knows why or what for. But but um, in in the Native Americans, who I've studied the most, as opposed to other primitive peoples around the world, they had a they had an honor type system. Right. So to them, to kill somebody was kind of a dishonorable thing because it's so easy to do. It's, right. Can I speak language? No, of course. It, it, yeah. It's chicken shit. Yeah, yeah. It's bullshit to just go and kill somebody. Right. So what you they wanted was the, was the mano a mano. Okay, right. here I am, one against one. Let's right. do this and see who's right. better. And they were, you can call it trained, but I think all, uh, I mean, you look, at, you look at elementary school kids today, any any young kids and it starts very early they all start to tussle and wrestle and and it's a physical yeah it's, it's this is this is what i am i'm a body yeah this 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 isn't all that important especially when you're young right so the body starts working and training and they're always wrestling and comparing themselves and you know about the the pecking order within within the human societies <laughs> right? the pecking order within the human societies it's yeah. all yeah it's all sort of a physical thing and and the way i see it 
in in childhood when you can't really get hurt right they're beating each other up and wrestling and and but what they're doing is they're figuring out who's hierarchy where. yeah i'm gonna do something to you i'm gonna shake your hand right now you've encountered this many times right now you're supposed to squeeze john, back john squeezing you're my hand you're supposed to squeeze yeah. back and what we are doing is we are measuring each other hmm. we are telling each other i am i'm going to test you right now first of all that's the first thing i'm going to test you some people don't aren't interested in testing but right. some will test you and now you have the option of doing a releaser letting go right that ends the that ends the conflict or you may engage and then you go now you're really getting into it this is a male thing women may have it too i do not know i've never been a woman so so this is a male thing of measuring of 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 finding out where you are and letting everybody else know what that thing is and i think that's part of what the the fighting in the warfare is um mm. my understanding of the plains indians i've made, i've read mostly the sioux and the cheyenne sioux children at about the age of seven are independent they start out living in the village with the women doing the thing varies whatever men come and go they're hunting or fighting or doing whatever they, whatever they do also in the village are people like myself a warrior that is now no longer a warrior i'm retired so i hunt uh I, I teach the kids how to hunt. They come to me and ask me questions. So I'm, I'm part of the teaching scenario within the village. At about the age of seven, the Sioux determined that their children were independent enough to be let go. We do that at 18 in our society. If then. In, in theirs, it was yeah. seven. So a boy, a young boy, is given a bow by somebody, a parent, somebody. They live in a small village, and everybody knows everybody. Everybody's interested in everybody. And that boy takes off. And you can imagine doing this today with all the millions of kids in this world, everybody out there with a bow or a club beating the crap out of whatever, doing whatever they're doing. Nowadays, it's a horrible thing because the number of human beings doing it is just the nature can't handle it. But in those days, they did that. And the boys were encouraged. So anything that they killed with their bow, they're just emulating their parents, they brought back. And mom cooked it and they ate it so that he now becomes a contributing member of his people, yeah. and he knows that. So he is being encouraged in all of these skills. Now, one of the things that primitive people usually have is, and this would be with all of your primate societies as well, they have a territory that they operate within. And if, if they start getting pressed in that territory and they're not getting enough food or they're getting maybe a discomfort in the brain, I think we actually have a crowding limit in our brain there's only so many people i can deal with and that's one of the problems in mm. modern society that's pressing on our brain mm. is that we're constantly in amongst thousands of strangers that we have to give in to yeah we, we don't get to just be our, our free will is gone we have to do what society tells us to do we have to get along with everybody and they didn't have to do that the primitives didn't have to do that if somebody encroached you hit back you did something. You let them know this is our territory. And this is pretty much what all primitive people fight about. But you have to have the ability to fight. And that is always brought up in the, in the youngsters who seem to want to fight automatically. Yeah. And youngsters fighting and playing are sort of in, in dis, uh, indistinguishable. Right. I mean, you look at baby bear cubs playing. That's they're learning to fight. They're learning to fight. Yeah. 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 And they're getting stronger. They're right. using that body. Right. Another one of our modern talk about health problems. Yeah. We, we live so long, bodies. but look at our quality of health. And look, actually, do we crap. live so long? I, I argue that we just take longer to die. 
That's it. We do, we're just old longer. Yeah, we die more slowly. Yeah. And but there's no lions anymore. We've eliminated all the lions and leopards, so, right. so there's nothing to get us except the bugs now. Right. And we're, and we're killing them at, at incredible rates. We're, yeah. We're really trying to eliminate our colors, the things that make us strong, mm. we're eliminating. So we're becoming weaker and weaker and weaker genetically yeah. as time goes by. Yeah, I think that's true. And psychologically, we're, we are taught, I call it, we're pacified. Yeah. Our governments have learned over the thousands of years how to pacify us, yeah. make us cooperative, so, so, social members. Malleable. That do not go too far. Yeah. Don't rock the boat. Well, we're domesticated. Absolutely. That, that's the great irony. As we domesticate other animals, we, we've domesticated ourselves. Correct. yeah. Yeah, and and suffering a lot of the same. Anyway, that that's a whole other conversation. I want to I want to learn about these these rattlesnakes. I don't want to get too far. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the audience of this podcast hears me whining about modern society every okay. damn week. All right, good. Well, yeah, one of the however it worked out. Yeah. So what did you do? You went into the workforce. Yeah, I went into the workforce, and uh, what what it allowed me to do was I had money. I could start buying things I wanted, mm. and I got into that. Is that when you learned woodworking? No, not not oh. yet. Uh-huh. So, like the very first job I had, I was a uh, I, I was still in college. I lived in a dormitory, and I I we had a cafeteria. I washed dishes. Right. And then after that, once I quit, what was my first job after I quit? I think I cleaned chinchilla cages for a company in San Diego that, you know, people grow chinchillas for the fur and then you turn them into these places. So they have chinchillas that you can buy, et cetera, et cetera. And so I had to clean the cages and kill the chinchillas, oh. which was an interesting thing. You take a, you take a cord with a plug on it mm. and it's got an alligator clip on each of the two leads. One goes on the ear, one goes on the hide leg. You plug it in. Here's the poor animal twitching and whatever, doing its thing. So that was one of my first jobs. Which also, by the way, makes the fur uh, more full. That's the, Oh, does it? Yeah, I, I worked for briefly for um, uh, like a animal rights nonprofit, and I remember one of the first things I learned was the way they kill minks is they they shove on like a, a, I don't know what it's called, like a, a probe up the mink's ass and then it electrocutes them oh interesting so it doesn't hurt the fur in yeah. any way but it also the electricity also like plumps the fur yeah and like makes it like being out in a storm with the lightning around your exactly. hair stands on end. Exactly. Oh, interesting yeah. interesting yeah that's not the way i want to go yeah. yeah but that that was one of the first that was one of my first major experiences on i, I really don't like killing yeah per se now, if, if I was raised a primitive and I had to hunt for a living, it might be a different scenario. But, but I find that I'm averse to killing something that, why? Why, why did I kill it? I mean, yeah. obviously it was right. bred for its fur and meat is bred for its meat, et cetera. So that's, that's more okay. But to just go, like people that go out and kill deer or whatever. Yeah. Uh, deer especially need to be culled in some way because we see the results of when, when they just eat everything along the rivers and nothing gets to live anymore. Well, and so. as you said, we've removed all the predators, so right. it's, yeah. it's out of balance. So, yeah. so I, I did a few jobs. I was a, I was a gift wrapper. Um, what was I doing? I think I was a gift wrapper when, when my roommate... Oh, I, I, I've, I've, I answered an ad for a job for a place called Cabrillo TV and Appliance, and they needed a driver. They needed a truck driver. So I went and I applied, and I didn't have a driver's license, so I didn't get the job. But I told my roommate about it, and he went and got the job. And when, they, when another opening came up, he 
told me about it. And during that time, I didn't have a car, so we used his car. I got a driver's license, and I was able to get the job the next time. And the thing about this was it, it paid 40 cents an hour more. The other jobs were $1.35, and this was $1.75. So it was quite, a, quite an up thing. <clears throat> so I did that for a while, and I guess I started out, um, I started out uh, driving supplies around, moving things, mm. an occasional delivery or some such. And uh, I started cleaning out used refrigerators and stoves and, and painting them. So I was starting to learn some skills uh, that would come in handy later in my life. Um, uh, I, I was sent on... I was sent out from time to time to repair something, and, and one day one of the bosses came and says, how'd you like to do this full time? And so there's another dollar an hour increase, and sure, so I became a, a an appliance repairman, and I did that for seven years, I believe. I had a ponytail at the time, because I'm a student of the 60s, or a child of the 60s, and uh, the boss really couldn't do anything about it, because apparently Congress had made some law saying that the person could be who they wanted to be and look like they wanted to be and you can't discriminate against them for that hmm. but then uh, let's see this was about 1970 76 1976 congress reversed that law because now the owner of the company has the right to have an image that he presents to the public hmm. and so this guy wanted clean cut blah 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 so he says uh cut your hair or i'm gonna have to ask you to leave so I ended up leaving, and that uh, that opened up an, an opportunity, as all is all death is basically a new birth. You, yeah. you close the door, it opens another door. Right. And so uh, one of the things that happened is I went back to school. Uh, beca- because of the s- situation with this guy, I was able to get on uh, unemployment. Mm-hmm. So I was on unemployment for three months. And during that time, I went back to a junior college, and I started taking classes. And then uh, uh, I, I met a girl at that college, and she took me to a nude beach. She started a whole new phase in my life, um, learning about human behavior and human mentality. B- hanging around a nude beach is quite an interesting experience. You, you think you're not hung up, but go to a nude beach and find out exactly how hung up you are. Um, anyway... Uh, uh, she she started me on new things. The her her brother-in-law picked avocados for a living, so I started picking avocados for a living. So now I'm back outdoors. I'm back in nature, doing the things I want to do. I'm making money doing it. Were you a nude avocado picker? No, <laughs> I don't think the, the the people that had the groves wouldn't appreciate that too much. So uh, so can we talk about the nude beach thing? Oh yeah, whatever you want. Because uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Brad Blanton. You ever heard? Of him? No. He's a psychologist who wrote a book called Radical Honesty. Some, I think, in the '80s or maybe even the '70s. And, and that's the whole thing: hiding. Yeah. We are hiding. Exactly. Yeah. And you he, talk about the hiding ovulation. Well, we're just hiding everything. Hide everything yes. and, and hide our shame. Yes. Uh, a lot of it. Yeah. And he did. A th- he, re- he actually ran for Congress um, in Virginia against Eric Cantor. And he won 25% of the vote without a party affiliation. Oh, interesting. A, a politician who refuses to lie about anything. Yeah. Very interesting guy. Yeah. Um, anyway, the reason the Democrats wouldn't, the Democrats wanted to sign him up because the guy had already won 25% of the vote with no party the right. last time. Yeah. So he's obviously got some skills, but uh, they, they wanted to sign him up. And at the last minute, they changed their mind because he did these workshops, these radical honesty workshops. And... Uh, at the end of the workshops, everyone would sit in a circle totally naked and talk about 
their shame over their bodies. Yes. And that was what the Democrats couldn't handle. Yeah. The nakedness. Yeah. Yeah. The honesty, the naked yeah. honesty, you know? Yeah. It, yeah uh, it, to me, we are, you know, when, whenever we started wearing clothes, it was probably had to do with temperature. I mean, before then, it would have been some kind of a decoration hmm. because we seem to be interested in decorations. And they're interesting. I just, I just watched a program the other day on chimpanzees where there's this female chimpanzee who takes a, a stem of grass, a long stem of grass, and she chews on it for a while, apparently softening it. Then she sticks it in her ear. And you can see her shaking her head as she hits that, whatever that nerve thing is that, yeah. that makes you say, get out of my ear. Yeah. She goes beyond that. And now she's got the grass just hanging out of her ear. And she does it all the time. And uh, now others in her band uh, are starting to do it. Culture. So a fashion is beginning to yeah. come within whatever. So that's, yeah. that's part of our thing is decoration. Right. So whatever, whatever happens, I mean, it is... Because we cover ourselves, we are doing what you say, we're hiding our shame. Where did we learn shame? Mm. You know, shame is what? It's bullshit. It's just just whatever. We are what we are. Right. And in the old days, you just accepted it. Another interesting thing about Native Americans. I'm sorry, but I keep doing these aside. No, please. That's the whole point of the fucking podcast. Just Native Americans. Another thing I forgot. I, I forget what I was going to say. You were going to say something about Native Americans and clothing, maybe? We were talking about shame. Shame. It's bullshit in the old days. We just, we are what we are. Oh, yeah. We are what we are. That's it right there. Native Americans, not all of them that I know of, just the ones I've read about that they mention this thing. Every child to them is a gift from what they would consider a great spirit, this large thing. And instead of saying... No, don't do that. Do this. No, don't do that. Taking that child's will and deflecting it away from what it wants, they, they nurtured it. Right. Who are you? What has the Great Spirit given us? Isn't this just awesome? Yeah. And, and look at what we do. We just make everybody into this horrible thing. I have, I have some neighbors that this woman is a Christian and there's nothing wrong with being a Christian. You know, it's like John Lennon said, whatever gets you through the night, if you have the need, then you're going to, you're going to go to whatever satisfies that need. But all day long, she's stopping those kids from doing anything. She's, she's putting this religion into their head, Hmm. making them believe that this is the paradigm that they experience. This is the real world. And so their whole life is going to be seen through those rose-colored glasses that she's putting on them. And the natives, the Native Americans didn't do that. They did the reverse. And that, I believe, is one of my things. I battled my parents my whole life. And I've just now recently, just within the last few months, realized what it is I've battled. And it's obedience. Mm. I've battled obedience. I've taken the punishment. That's no problem. My mom and dad used to yell me, whip me, blah, blah, blah. Go to your room, don't do this, blah, 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 fine. Then you turn around, you go back and you do it again Mm. because they can't stop me from doing it. They can just punish me. So taking the punishment is no problem because it allows me to do what I want to do. So, but, but to have grown up the Native Americans in a, in a society that doesn't have punishment, is there judgment? Sure. I mean, we all do that. Like I said, you know, we got that thing in the beginning. You start testing your strength against each other. Mm. You realize where somebody is and somebody knows I'm weaker than that person. I'm not, I can't do that as well. Mm. Crazy Horse was a very small individual. Mm. He was not a big physical person, but he had eyesight that everybody depended on. Mm. So even though he wasn't physical in that regard, his value came out right so everybody has a value to some for something for somebody our culture 
makes what we're valuable in who knows what it makes it i mean in in the, in the indian culture they lived in the primitive so eyesight hearing running speed uh, those would all be very positive aspects within their culture maybe not so much in our culture today although there is there does seem to be a growing military presence so the you know the fighting skills and stuff like that back in the 70s you started getting those kung fu movies and so fighting skills are becoming more popular now and we're actually putting them to use worldwide now we're training to kill and one of the things with the computers today we're training kids i have the kids my the, the woman that does to her kids which i don't which i don't like her their father is one of these guys that sits at a computer and kills people over in iraq with the unmanned aircraft the predator drones talk about chicken shit warfare but this is the future this is what it's going to be so you watch all these games that are on computers and stuff what are they they're training Training. the kids to kill with the computers and to accept killing and death as, as just a normal part a fun thing in life yeah so so and i guess it may be a symptom of overpopulation you know in the old days going back to the fighting i'm sorry i keep doing these asides but going back to those fightings it wasn't about killing the enemy it was getting to respect you and your your territory and so like your coup to kill is easy it's simple to risk your life is much more valuable Mm. and so you run up to this guy and you whack him with your stick and you run away without getting killed that's a skill that's a that's a daring skillful thing which was another one of the 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 the, uh, attributes that crazy horse had Mm. he was absolutely insanely brave Uh, he, he had visions on you know indians many many tribes have their visions and his vision told him you are untouchable unless one of your own people is holding you back hmm. holding on to you holding you back now you are vulnerable and that's ultimately that's how, how, he how he ended up getting killed yes. yeah and, and when he got wounded he got wounded like well he was taking a scalp which his vision to- told him not to do so he, he the things he went against the vision so those those are their beliefs that they were into i saw driving down here yesterday we went by a monument um where geronimo yeah. Uh, surrendered sort of it's sort up, of. up in the, up in the skeleton canyon yeah. it's called yeah. yeah yeah geronimo i remember reading you know talking about this particularly boys and and things that native americans had that we don't seem to have one of them i think that's really important is this ritual of becoming a man becoming yes. a warrior an adult or, or yeah. a woman you know and um i remember being struck by how you receive a new name yeah the name you're given as a as a baby is just to get you through the baby years and then you know you have your vision either because you were fasting or using some sort of psychoactive plant or whatever it was and the shaman would help you or or name you based on the vision right and i remember reading somewhere that now geronimo was a name given to him by the mexicans i think yes they're they're spanish enemies their mexican enemies gave him a name which they loved yeah yeah this is who i am and he actually killed a lot more mexicans than he did americans he he was he detested the mexicans yeah um but his childhood name if i remember correctly was fat boy yawner also oh yawner is the yawner (laughs) i haven't heard fat boy but i've heard yawner yawner that's funny that's funny yeah, Do, what was his name? Do you know in, in his in Apache? Don't know. I, I don't mm-hmm. know either. Yeah. Yeah, that's 
You know, some some Native Americans they have a, a secret name, mm. like the um, the Navajo. They're they're a form of Apache, an mm-hmm. early breakoff from the Apaches. They have a secret name, which really only comes into play during a medicine ceremony or some such, mm. when it, when it says a, something sacred. Right. Otherwise, the names are pretty much what people call you. Yeah, and well, they can change over your right. life. Yeah. What's her name? Dorothy. She calls me the Rattlesnake Man. Yeah, I mean, okay. Right, that right. that's who I am to her. Yeah. In, in one of my names, perhaps, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe she calls me something else, you know, that, that she doesn't want me to know about. I don't Ordinary know. Ordinary son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was pretty common amongst the Native Americans that, that you were, you were what you were called, what right. you were to the people. Which reminds me also of the, the, the sense of leadership in, you know, we're calling them primitive people, but we don't mean that. Right. Insultingly at Correct. all, obviously. They're much and, better off than we were. And we don't even mean that they're necessarily simpler. Correct. Um, the same the brain very, we have. Very same. Yeah. And in fact, uh, hunter-gatherers are about 10% larger brain size yeah. than modern people. So, you know, everyone should understand when we use these terms, it's it's the language is packed and we don't uh, we're not signing on to this. But um, the sense of leadership. Who is a leader? A leader is a person that the other people want to follow. That is absolutely correct. You know, you so wanted to be a leader that you were shunned. You're ridiculous. You wanted to be rich. Yeah. You were shunned. Right. Yeah. You horrid material. The leader generally is the person who gives away the most. Correct. The, they, so they probably live in the smallest hut and they yeah. have the least number of fancy things because yeah. they give things away. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, and so the naming is the same. I feel this. I think names are so silly. Yeah. I don't give a shit if people remember my name. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's it's interesting that people who get my name wrong generally call me Steve. Oh, and so, so, I so think you I must should, you may look like a Steve. I in guess some way. so. I've got I've got some Steve essence. Yeah. Uh yeah. So I should change my name to Steve probably. No, let the people change your name to Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so we're in this. We're in. Where are we now? We're in the seventies. Oh, we'll go I, through the life. Yeah, uh, yeah. The cr- the chronology. So, uh, so I, I'm interested in how how the whole snake thing came okay, up. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I keep I keep getting off track. Anyway, <laughs> there um, is no track. We'll get there. The the yeah, that's right. You can edit it the way you want it. Put well, it I don't edit shit. I won't okay. edit, unless okay. you ask me to. I won't oh, no, edit anything. No, no. But the the podcast is called Tangential speaking so everything's off okay yeah go where okay you want. so, so yeah. back in the 70s i was going back to school i was being taken to the nude beach now that's what oh the, we're gonna talk about nude, nude beaches. beaches that's what it was yeah okay. yeah okay because yeah, you know i'm only comfortable naked around other people when it's a sexual situation yes which most people are that's why nudity is now linked with sexuality yeah. and has been for i don't know ten thousand years huh yeah, yeah, it's, that's interesting. It's, uh, oh, big dust coming in. One of the things that I found, like when I first went, the girl's name was Anne. Hmm. She took me to the beach. She'd been going to the beach. She's obviously much freer than I ever was and more of a, a child of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, long hair, wore her loose hippie dress. She was just fascinating person. Yeah. So she took me to the beach and I was afraid. What was I afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of being judged, I guess, because that's what our society does. We judge. And that's why our God judges, because Mm. he was made by the society, Mm. on and on. So I went, and I was nervous. And what's a guy nervous about? Well, I'm going to see a good-looking chick and get a heart on. Well, well, there you go. But that that didn't happen. Right. I was with her. It still didn't happen. Um, So you start learning, well, this this is a little different than I thought it was going to be. And over a period of time... 
I mean, you see some fat guy, some fat lady walking down the, the street, whatever, and you kind of you automatically judge her. And you're, if you're fat, she's all right. If you're not fat, she's bad, whatever it is. However, we, we do these judging. And you start seeing these people. And instead of just being a fat person or whatever, they're just a person. Yeah. And you start seeing everybody as just another person, another human being. Some of them are good looking. Some of them aren't, new, aren't good looking. Um, in, in our culture, it's almost like... I think we assume that if you see a naked woman, it's a sexual situation mm. or you're going to get sexually attracted. And that's not the case at all. It's absolutely right. the reverse. Right. Because inside of every one of us, we have our own, uh, call it a program. These are the things that I like or I don't like. I like spaghetti and I don't like zucchini, you know, and they're, they're just in me. Nobody taught me this stuff. Uh, and so there are things that I'm attracted to. And when you see somebody that fits those dimensions, now you're kind of attracted and you have the option of communicating or whatever. But because we're not like a man, okay, a man, we are taught to, um, what is she going to think of the size of my penis? Mm. Oh, my God. You know, I know I have a small dick. Is is she just going to turn me away? So our whole psychology is screwed in trying to make a relationship based on crap that's been shoved into our heads that has no reality at all. It's all an artificial culture. So you start accepting everybody as who they are. You can sit down and, you know, like the way you're sitting right now. It's all perfectly fine. There is no, there is no shit going on about judgment taking place. So 15 years of that was just such a total enlightening of of my brain Mm. and how you relate to other people. Mm. People are just people. It's it's really hard to describe without actually experiencing. But no, I know what you're saying. Most yeah. people most people have had an experience of skinny dipping, right? And that is wonderful, right? I don't know of anybody that's ever gone skinny dipping that didn't say it feels wonderful. It feels great. Guess what, people? It's real. Putting on a bathing suit after you get accustomed to swimming nude feels so weird. Absolutely, yeah. It's like it's like swimming in jeans or yeah. something. It's just what yeah. what am I doing? It, Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so whatever it is about this culture, it's just, you know, it's just horrible. And, and we've taken all these laws and we've put them up to the level of religion. Yeah. So you can't even resist because if you resist and you're a Christian, you're going to fry. There's nothing you can do. What was your, your dad's role in the military? He was a fighter pilot on aircraft carriers. I think he joined, wow. he was 21, uh, right at the beginning of World War II. So, mm-hmm. so he, he was on several carriers in World War II, same in Korea. He was also active in Vietnam. Whether he, actually, he flew planes, but whether he flew on missions, I don't know. He was still in the squadron, but I knew on the carrier he was the executive officer of the squadron. And I'm not sure if the executive officer or the commander actually go on missions or if they send other people in the squadron to do the missions themselves. But he was, he was a naval fighter pilot, fighter, fighter bomber pilot, did both, fighting and bombing. They had the highest uh, fatality rate of any division in the military, I believe, mm-hmm. in World War II. Pilots in general would have you helicopter but, pilots, but particularly in World War Two. Oh, Pacific. in World War Two, correct? Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that was the air war. That was the especially in the in Japan or in in the yeah. South Pacific. It was all air battles. Wow. Yeah. Did do you ever talk to him about his experience? He, he didn't talk about it, yeah. and I was apparently ignorant enough to not really know what was going on. Hmm. To me, my father was a man who came home at five six o'clock at night, sat down, read the newspaper ate dinner, watched TV, went to bed. 
we I kind of remember playing catch with him when I was a little kid when I, about the time I broke my kidney five or six something mm-hmm. like that but the rest of my life I don't think we ever did anything together at all hmm. do you have siblings I have two sisters and a brother yeah two older uh, older sister a younger sister and a much younger brother hmm. same same parents same parents yes yeah, yeah. yeah. So they stayed together. And so did, did you, uh, I mean, cause it seems like the trajectory of your life is, is breaking out of these mind forged manacles, right? But and first you have to know you're, you know, you're trapped. I, I, I take that back. You don't, that doesn't have to be first huh. because I was going out on my own all the time. Right. So whatever was in me, whoever I am was already needing, wanting to do that. But accepting the restraints to whatever level I was accepting the restraints. That's the thing about this thing that took place in 1967 uh, when I gave up the job, went back to school, started working free. This whole thing of who I am came to the fore. Hmm. And now it was, I was also reading Eastern philosophy at the time. I was also reading Eastern philosophy. Yeah. And one of the things they said is you got to find out who you are. Right. How do I do that? Right. How do I do what I want to do? How do I know what I want to do? And one of the replies was quit doing the things you don't want to do. <laughs> and guess what? That's you will advice. start doing the things you want to do. Right. And that has been the rule of my life since that, since when I quit that job and stuff. That's why I gave up on that job. Uh-huh. I was already starting to feel... Okay, I'm ballsy enough that I'm actually going to take this guy up. I'm going to I'm going to cut my past off and start all over again, mm. even though I'm afraid to do it. Right. I'm going to do it. Right. And I did. And you've never been married or had children, is that right? No, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. That's something else you and I have in common. Yeah. I've always felt that that would have undermined my ability to make that kind of decision. Correct. I call it pulling. Huh. Having somebody else in your life Pulls a trajectory. I'm on a trajectory, right. and all of a sudden, somebody's trying to deflect me like crazy and horse, I, and I can't handle it. Yeah, yeah, I can't handle it. Yeah, it's a vulnerability that I've never felt I could handle. I, I could, I never felt. And I'm not. I don't mean this in any superior sense. It, me, same with me. I absolutely like, admire people that can yeah. get together and get get along right. together for any length of time. Have children. I mean, my niece is 24. She's just graduating from a, she's getting a, a doctorate of physical therapy. Mm. And I mentioned to my sister, oh, we're, we're, I mean, all the crap going on in the world. And I says, look what you've done. You've stayed married this entire time and your daughter is graduating college and she still loves you. Mm. She calls you up. She comes and yeah. who's done that? And she wants to help people. She, yeah. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's great. Uh, were there psychedelics involved in, in this process for you? Um, I'm going to say no. Um, when I was in college, from you may see me blinking from time to time. I have, I have a thing with my eyes, and I don't know if it's stress-related or wind. Or, I've had it my whole life. Hmm. It's getting worse as I get older now, but um, that, was, that was dealing with another, what were we just saying? <laughs> psychedelics. Oh, um, my first year in college in the dorm... Um, you know, when I, when I lived, when I, when I was in junior high school in San Diego, a kid got bodily carried out of class by the vice principal for having cigarettes on him. That was in ninth grade. I moved to Virginia and you go to the bathroom and it just reeks of, of smoke. Everybody's smoking in the bathroom. So from one reality to a different reality. And then I moved back to San Diego after three years and now it's drugs everywhere. Never, I'd never heard of them. 
So here's this drug thing. And so you start listening to people talking, and of course the psychedelics, LSD is destroying people, killing people, blah, 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 things you don't want to do. We had a guy called the Orange Juice Man. He got stoned, and somewhere he figured he was an orange, and if somebody touched him, he's going to turn to orange juice, and he never came out of it. That was mm. the story. Whether it was true or not, I have no idea, but that's, that was the story. But pot seemed to be an okay thing. So I was offered to, to share a joint with two other people one day just prior to going to lunch. So I did it. And, uh, okay, eh, well, I'm not, I don't feel anything, no big deal, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I go down to lunch, eat my lunch, stand up with my tray and start walking toward the tray thing. Woo! <laughs> Things just aren't quite real anymore, you know? Mm. Everything's And you look at somebody and they're looking at you and they know you just smoked pot. <laughs> so I got real paranoid and I yeah. went upstairs and I lay down on, on my cot on my bed and I went right to sleep. Oh, that was an, another problem I've had since childhood. I'm an insomniac. I have music going in my head all the time or thoughts. Mm. So I didn't fall asleep very well. And, and I fell right to sleep with this pot. So I asked this guy, can I have a little bit? Can I get a number from you? So he gave me a number. And so I would just take a couple of puffs each evening. And it didn't put me to sleep but it made it so I didn't give a damn anymore, hmm. which was another one of what I realized, my own psychological problems. I start battling things. I start fighting. I get angry. Hmm. And now there's no way I'm going to go to sleep because I'm hot and angry. Hmm. So this pot allowed me to, to turn that off. And I did that for 10 years. I, never, hmm. I didn't party with people. I didn't like that. Right. But to just have a little puff or two at night to put myself to sleep, that was fine. And then I started feeling... In the morning, there's kind of a carryover that I don't really enjoy. I feel lethargic and sluggish. Mm. and eh. So I decided time to quit. And this took place right when I went the, the same summer. There's this one big summer that everything took place, 1976. Another thing that happened that summer, which is all part of this, is a guy I worked with at Cabrillo, who no longer worked there, had been going hitchhiking with a buddy around the country, and he invited me to go on a hitchhiking trip. And I said, if I get another job, I won't. But if I don't get another job, I'll go with you. I didn't get another job, so I went with him. So we went. He, he lived here in Arizona. I'd never been in Arizona before. So we, I came out here to Arizona, hitchhiked to Arizona. Very interesting. Spent the whole day on a stop in El Cajon and coming dark. Some guy stops and gives me a ride. Took me all the way to the trailer in Tucson that the guy lived in. Hmm. The first ride, one ride. So... Weird, weird, weird stuff going on if you, if you want to deal with weird stuff. So we went on this hitchhiking trip, and halfway through it, as we're going, every time you get in the car, hey, you guys want to, want to toke, you know, blah, 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 invite us to a party afterward. They're going, wait, this is all going the wrong direction for me. So we end up in Seattle where he's got relatives, and, and we're there for a couple of days, and it's all the party thing. And so I finally say, I'm, I'm, I'm going off on my own. I, I don't want to do this party stuff anymore. And that was probably the most daring thing I've ever done in my life, to just be out in the middle of nowhere and just go. Hmm. Cast your fate to the wind. The first guy might rape you and kill you. There's, there's no way of knowing. And it freed me. There was a fear inside of me. Uh, Two-bedroom apartment with all my possessions, locked the doors at night. There was all this stuff that just vanished after that trip. It was a completely 
mind-freeing experience. And this is all timing with the beach. It's all timing with the loss of the job, the going out, picking the avocados. So whatever happened in my life, it was just a completely new me. Hmm. A, a whole new being emerged from this. After 1976. After 1976. This one, this yeah. one year. And how old were you then? You were born I was, I was 29. So you're 29. Yeah. Okay. So, right. so what happened after that? I now had time, you know, I, I'd always been curious and interested in the snakes. Uh, we'll go back to the rattlesnakes here. It, it's similar timing. At that job, there was a friend of mine, Gary, who had an Alfa Romeo. I love like Cabrillo. Cabrillo TV yeah, and appliance. Yeah. I, he had an Alfa Romeo vehicle. And I was at work one day and some new temporary we had was working and he came, hey, you guys want to see something? So we go out to the parking lot and he opens his trunk and he's got these buckets and he has sidewinders and glossy snakes and rosy bow stuff in there. Whoa, this is cool. It's blah, blah, blah. So he goes out to the desert at night and he drives the desert roads at night and he finds these snakes and he collects them and then he brings them back and he sells them to the pet shops. Well, that quickly got kiboshed in the 70s, uh, the, the, the sale of wild animals, et cetera, et cetera. So Gary and I were fascinated. So Gary said, hey, you want to go out and check this out? Let's do it. So I start going out to the desert with Gary. And in San Diego, you, you have coastal mountains that you have to go up and over in an Alfa Romeo on a two-lane road, and he was a driver. Hmm. Oh, what another awesome experience <laughs> to take on is driving, yeah. driving mountain roads in a hot car that's made to do it. Right. Woo. So that happened. So we're out in the desert now, and I think our first night we had, I think we had 13 snakes our first night. Really? And, and half a dozen of them were oh, sidewinders. Because they come to, to rest on the warm road? That is, in my opinion, I mean, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a rule that I don't know anything. I just mm. know what my life has taught me. Mm. Um, I do not believe that. Mm. All, I've seen thousands and thousands of snakes on roads. We did this for years. They are crossing the road. And when they're crossing the road, a threat comes up, they freeze. Ah. Now they are lying on the road when you find them. I've had two snakes in all those thousands that were ever actually coiled up, curled up on the road mm. in a resting position when I found them. Some of them were stretched out and they curled up, mm. but to me, they were all in the act of crossing. What you have in a desert situation is that the daytimes are too hot for them to come out and hunt. So they're underground all day long. Then the sun goes down, temperature starts cooling, ground temperature gets cool enough that they can survive, and out they come to start feeding. Mm. So this is when they're active in the first several hours after, after it gets dark. So this, this is what we were doing. So that, that got me into rattlesnakes. That very first night, I think I brought back uh, two or three sidewinders and a little red diamond rattlesnake. It's so. So were you were you grabbing them by, with hand? Or no, did we you were have the fork stick thing. We were. I'm trying to think how we actually picked up those first few. I'm not really certain. What ultimately happened? What what very quickly happened is I went to a noose. So the problem with the noose is you have to put it around the snake's head. Then you have to grab the snake. And then you have to get the news off the snake. And to me, that started becoming going back to the chicken shit thing. Mm. It's, it's too overpowering, too dominant on my mm. part to an animal that I don't want to harm, that I don't right. want to do anything to. So I started doing what's called tail grabbing. So you have a container and there's the snake and you quickly grab its tail and whip it. Don't whip it, but you quickly get it into the container before it can bite you. So mm. those are my first bite so it takes some time to to turn and come back up to the time and momentum and mass right yeah, it, right. it has to it, it, you know if it, it's quick enough it can't fight that that speed right 
So those were the first bites that I got doing, doing that type of thing. And so ultimately that skill evolved to where it became a tail grab with a hook. So this is a technique where the snake is crawling or coiled, whatever it is, and you reach out with the hook with one hand and you, you get the snake up. And as he's crawling off the hook, your other hand grabs his tail. Now you've got him by the tail and the rest of his body on a hook. Right. So you're kind of stretching right. him out between. Right. And you can feel if he lets go of the hook, if he goes limp, you can feel that in the tail right. and you let go. Uh -huh. So I developed a, a, a skill doing that. And when I started coming here to, to, to uh, Arizona, I was using the stick. The, the hiking here is very intense compared to what I was doing in San Diego. You have to climb steep hills all the time. And so I kept breaking the stick. So I finally went to a bigger, heavier stick. And I no longer carried the hook. And what, what instead happened was my hat became the hook. Mm. So it's tail grab get him into the hat and stretch him out and you've got him stretched between the hats so that's the technique i used here for i don't know 35 40 years whatever and what are you doing with the snakes this this all starts out as a going back to the desert we're driving down the road in we've just come down this little rocky s turn now we're out on the flat in the s turn i'd find a red diamond rattlesnake i'd find a rosy boa out on the flat i'd find a sidewinder i'd find a shovel nose snake or some other more sand snake. So I, I started, I question everything. So I started wondering why I'm finding these here and these here. So, so that what I do is I go out one evening, spend the night, and the next morning I'd redrive the route because I kept notes on the mileages and seeing what the terrain was like. So I slowly began to learn, okay, these kind of snakes are associated with this terrain, these kind of snakes mm. associated with this terrain. And then there's also a moon phase situation. Um, if there's a full moon out, you don't find any snakes on the road. Really? They're just not there, or very rarely do you ever find a snake. So I began to keep records. I was going out twice a week for years, and I'd keep records and moon records. And what you'd find is that when the moon is full, let's say the night the moon rises, it's not even quite dark yet, but the moon is already up. And that bright light deters the snakes from coming out for whatever their reasons are. Mm. I'm not certain of it. Um, and then after two nights... The moon doesn't come up for a couple of hours. And now the snakes, they come out. And as it turns out, as the moon is getting fuller over the, over the weeks, there's a whole week prior to the full moon where by the time that gets dark, by the time the sun, it's already bright light out. So there's no snakes out. They don't do anything. The full moon, there's no snakes. Second day or first day after the full moon, not much. Second day, bam, they all come out. Just like they've been waiting They've been waiting for the right opportunity, the darkness to get out there so they're not nailed by a predator. I don't know what they think. Hmm. This is an instinctive type thing mm -hmm. that obviously the species has learned in some way, shape, or form. And it's just now an ingrained behavior that they all do. Those that do come out are more, more, much more likely to get nailed by a predator. And so they're not as likely to reproduce. Uh, so anyway, I, I learned these various cycles. So as I'm, as I'm doing these things, I'm learning about snakes. And every time you learn something, it creates a whole new question. In fact, it creates two questions. I have, an, I have an image. You walk through a door and you're in a room that has two more doors. So you walk through another door. Well, what didn't you find going that way? Mm. You walk through another door. Now there's two more doors added to the ones that mm -hmm. kept. So the more you learn, the, the, less, there, the less you ultimately know. That's basically. life right there. The more there is to know. <laughs> yeah. So I started doing, uh, about this time of the, of the transition, my, my, the 67 time, we had uh, 
76. Se- 76. Yeah. Se- same numbers. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it almost counts. <laughs> it's probably a good transition at 67, too. Um, I was doing local, what I call red diamond speckled rattlesnake dens. They're on rocky hillsides in the foothills of San Diego. And I started going out and I started finding snakes. So for several years, I would just, oh, that's a red diamond. Cool. Here's a speckled. Cool. You know, so you go out in the springtime when they're emerging from their winter thing. They don't, they don't den in mass. They're just spread out on the hillside. So you don't really get a bunch at any time. But one time I went out and we have fires in Southern California and there had been a fire that burnt through the, the previous summer. And so in this spring, I was, no, this was actually the same year, same, same summer that the fire happened in. This was in September or October. I came across a female red. She had 12 newborns with her. And I'd never had a litter of, of babies before. And the newborns were, they were covered in ticks. Virtually all of the growth was gone. All the, all the grass, all the plants, everything was gone. It was just moonscape. And so I decided to take three of those babies into captivity, detick them, and keep them over the winter and let them go in the spring. Mm. And so in, in, in an effort to be able to recognize who they were, I put paint on their rattles so that if I saw them again the following years, they'd be painted, and I'd know that's one of mine, and I'd know they survived. Uh, the rattles don't, they don't shed rattles like lizard scan or something The rattles like that. will ultimately break off and fall off. But they gain a new one every time they shed. And depending on the species of snake, some retain two or three rattles, some retain a dozen. Ah. Based on the strength, I would guess, of the, of the, mm. of the rattle structure, the, the, the material. Mm. Each segment is just a shed of the organ on the very tip of the rattlesnake's tail. Mm. And so they grow from the snake outward as the snake grows, mm. and, uh, as the snake lives, and then they, they break off. So there's usually, depending on species, a certain number of rattles that are, that are there that, that persist. So you put paint on them, and you can see them over the years. And that became my modus operandi when I came out here to Arizona, started hunting the Arizona snakes. I was painting their tails all the time to get a quicker identification on them. As I'm, as I'm learning these things, I'm also on the red diamonds in San Diego and the speckleds. They have a, 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 a red, white, and kind of a grayish coloration on them. And the tail turns to a coontail, red, I mean, white and black rings. But those white and black rings are not always perfect rings. Sometimes they're at angles. Sometimes one will split into a Y. You'll have a checkerboard effect. And I began to learn that all the snakes are different. They, they may look the same, but if you take a good, look, close look at a photograph, you'll see that they're all different. And so I began photographing all these animals and comparing the photographs year after year with what I was seeing. And so I was getting uh, identification with the photos, identification with the paints on them. I was learning about uh, how often they shed their skins uh, by the numbers of unpainted segments on the rattles. Mm. So e- everything I do just keeps making it to, into a bigger and bigger and more compounded type thing. So I've been, I've been in the, the, the first, see, I started the desert driving in, let's call it 1968, 69. That went on for, that went on until 1983 when I started coming here. Because now I no longer had the summers to drive there because I was out here doing this, doing my local stuff. And, and the San Diego, looking for the reds and the speckles, that's been going on for 50 years now. So that's, that's what I'm the most knowledgeable or comfortable in but the problem with that situation is it's just a spring emergence census is all it is Mm. you go out in the in the summertime you're not going to find a snake you're not going to find a rattlesnake it's too hot out there they're under all the shrubs and brush so you can you can go out for a week and see one or two snakes but you can go out on a single 
two hours in the springtime and see a dozen snakes. Mm. So that's basically what I was going for. Mm. Coming here, I began to learn new things. I was, at first you're just hiking everywhere. You're going all over the place and you see what you see because you don't know anything. And then uh, I keep finding snakes kind of in this sort of situation. So next time I find one of those situations, I'm going to check it out. Sure enough, you start finding more of those snakes. So you're learning about their usage of the habitats. Well, I started finding these things that I call dens, where in the springtime, you could see a half a dozen to a dozen snakes all within a a, a hundred foot square. Never were they... Really? Never together, but just covering a small area that had just the right type of habitat that allows them to overwinter and survive. And so I, w- I would check these dens out. It's the first thing I did every, every year when I came here. Um, I'd check out the dens, get the counts, the IDs on everybody, and then the dens would empty out. But a few would stay. Are they eating over the winter or do they no, hibernate? No, they don't, yeah. And hibernation is, uh, I think most people believe that hibernation is some sort of going to sleep type thing. That's a, a torpor of some type. Estivation, whatever all the terms for it are. Some animals do that, some don't. Snakes probably do it or do not do it based on the temperature that they are confined to in the wintertime. Snakes out here in southern Arizona, they probably do not really do that. And I'll talk more about that, about my my newest thing here is a a den in a person's building. Uh, It's a a hibernaculum in in a person's outbuilding. So what I was finding is that these, these females that were staying, or the animals that were staying after everybody left, were females, adult females. And... They were pregnant. They gave birth. So over the years, I would find that, okay, there's a certain type of a den that the females go to to give birth, but they're not there every year. Every second year, every third year, they show up. So somewhere, I mean, sometime when they're not here, they're someplace else doing something else. So I'm slowly beginning to learn the the life habits. They have needs. They go to a particular place, which is good for spending the winter, but it's also good for staying protected in the summertime. It's a good place for the babies to be born and be protected, be warm enough, be dry enough, uh, be wet enough, cool enough, whatever. Mm. It has all these features to it. They give birth once a year? Yes, they give birth one time or one, one time in the year that they're going to give birth. Oh. Mo- most people, it's like there's a difference between a, a, what's called a, a, a live bearing snake. I think the term is ovoviviparous because it is still an egg, as we are an egg. But they are never, the egg never gets a leathery coating like most reptile eggs have, and they're never laid. They're, they, they're retained inside the female. And I believe, based on uh, dissections of dead snakes, roadkills that I found, there's there's tremendous amount of uh, vascularization, veins and arteries in this ovarian tube that the eggs are in. So I believe that they are getting some sort of a nutrient bathing from the mother. Mm. And my studies here have kind of re- reinforced that because when I see a pregnant female in the springtime, I can't tell she's fe- pregnant yet. But by learning their behaviors and other things, I can now tell a pregnant female in the springtime whether she's fat or not. But over the summer, they get fatter. So eggs, eggs can't increase in size unless they're getting nutri- nutrition somewhere. So I believe they're getting a nutrient thing. Um, the snakes that 
where were we going? You asked well, me a question. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the reproduction of snakes. I, like you mentioned that you came across a female with 12 young. I didn't know the young stayed with the mother. That's, I thought they all just dispersed when they yeah, were born. The, this is where I was going in answering that. The egg-laying snakes lay the eggs and leave. Hmm. Then the babies are born. They come out and do whatever they do. They're all born in a pre-shed, which means they're going to shed their skin, and it takes about two weeks for that to happen. All reptiles do it. The rattlesnakes, the mother doesn't leave. She gives birth. She, she's been holding them her whole, the whole time. She gives birth underground, and then she and the babies come up onto the surface of the ground. And she gives birth live? She gives yes. So they hatch inside her and come out live. This is, a, this is something that's never actually been tested, but I have a theory on it based on the years that I used to breed egg-laying snakes. What an egg-laying, an animal that is, that is laid as an egg, and has to, they have to get out of the egg. So they wake up, and, and they start fighting to get out. So my theory is the eggs that are inside the female live bearer, they wake up and she feels that and she gives birth. And probably, potentially, the act of squeezing through the, the, the opening to get out wakes up the ones that aren't necessarily woken up mm. and, and they, they wake up and they come out. So mm. they're, they're born in a clear sack, just like a mammal is, like a human would be, and they struggle and that sack just breaks apart and they get out interesting uh, the the yeah. rattlesnakes that i've had i've only actually seen one birthing in the years that i've bred snakes it, they usually always take place at night i wake up in the morning here's some babies in the cage oh wow so so what they do in the wild is completely unknown unless people have gone out of their way and i'm not sure this has ever been done to actually put cameras somehow in the holes that the female is going to give birth in you can go on you can watch videos of a female laying eggs or laying giving birth but those are all set up they're all they're all set up uh, fake situations right um so anyway in my studies in the wild i never uh, say a, a, a normal litter there's let's say there's uh there's 10 eggs and that can vary with species. So there's going to be 10 eggs inside the female. Nine of those are live, perfectly healthy animals. The other one is kind of deformed. It didn't really work out well, whatever. Or there's, there may even be an infertile egg in there, a slug. So this all comes out at the birthing. And in the cages, it makes quite a mess. I've never, ever found a mess in the wild. So to me, they all give birth underground. And then they come up. And then you see the mother and the babies together. So the, this, the male has no role. Male has no role in, in, in not not in this species. Right. We're, what species are we talking about here? Okay. Rattlesnakes. Yeah. Th these are, these are rattlesnakes, and the species that I know the most about because of my studies here are the ridge-nosed rattlesnake. That's my primary study animal. The banded rock rattlesnake, which is a secondary study animal because it lives in the exact same habitat that the ridge-nosed does, hmm. but only has, well, it has 10 times the population of the ridge-nosed. Hmm. So that was what really brought me here, is how can you have two species that virtually eat and live and do everything the same, but one of them has 10 times the volume of the, the numbers of the other one? That was my original question that, that brought me here. Have you answered that? Um, I have not answered that, but I've found some, some information on that. The banded rock rattlesnake, which is the very common one, they're all over the, these mountains right here in southeastern Arizona. Um, they're the very common one. They give birth to an average of 3.5 young individuals in the litter. The ridge nose gives birth to 6.7. 
So if you're at all in, in knowledgeable in nature, the more young there are, that means there's pressure. There's, there's a prey pressure taking place, predation pressure, that they need to have this many babies just to keep the numbers level. Hmm. So somebody is preying on the ridge nose that is not preying on the banded rocks. One of my theories, which has never been supported, and it's just a thought, I don't know that I truly believe it, but it is a, a question mark in, in my head that I was hoping would be answered in my lifetime and, and may, may not be. I'm not going to see this. Banded rock rattlesnakes have been found, people that studied them have found reptile scales in the banded rock rattlesnakes, which means they do eat other cold-blooded prey. They also have found snake scales in the, the banded rock feces. Hmm. So it's potential that they eat snakes. It is possible that an adult banded rock might be eating baby ridge nose, but that has never been shown. That's never been proven. There's never been any kind of a ridge nose scale in a banded rock or whatever. Most of the snakes, both, both species, they tend to eat lizards as they're young, and the banded rocks shift over to mammals, to where they're primarily mammal eaters as adults. The, the banded rocks also take on mammals, but they'll go either way, mammal or, or lizard, just as easily. And what are the principal uh, predators on these snakes? Primarily, I would say it should be the raptors first. They're a daytime operating animal, so the raptors are flying around finding them. But the ones here, they're, they're kind of in the woods, so the raptors seen them and it's not as, it's not as easy. So there has to be something else going on in the woods. Um, people I've talked to, I've know, I know a lot of birders here. Virtually all my friends are, are ace birders out here, mm. which is kind of boring at dinner sometimes because that's, <laughs> that's all, all anybody about. ever talks about <laughs> is birds. So, um, but anyway, um, oh, the, the other predators. Um, I've asked some of those birders whether something like a, a, a jay, we have the, the blue jays, mm. stellar jays, whatever the various types of jays that are, they are big enough and they are predaceous and they most certainly could consume a, a, a baby of these rattlesnakes. These are, these are miniature species. The full-grown adults are only 20 to 24 inches long and a newborn is only 7 inches long. Mm. So it's quite easy for something small to eat them squirrels could eat them skunks could eat them mm. uh, we have pigs out here that we'd eat them mm. bears could eat them road runners road runners very definitely yeah. uh, road runners are up in these canyons not in large numbers but they are here yeah. other snakes we have uh, the whip snakes and the coach whips yeah. um snake eating snakes right yeah so if i look at a hillside like that which is we're looking at a hillside which is what 400 feet high something like that yep um yep. How many snakes would you figure on that hillside? Based on where we are, we are just below banded rock rattlesnake habitat. I used to camp here hundreds of times. Hmm. Never, ever found a banded rock. Blacktail rattlesnake, which is a full-size rattlesnake, three to four feet, they are here. Hmm. Uh, coach whips and whip snakes are very common here. So how many snakes are on that hillside? I don't know, a hundred. Really? Just just within, right. just within just what, what you what see we're right here. At. Yeah, yeah. But how would you ever find them? Who would know? Yeah, and and most now you said some snakes only come out in the first few hours of darkness. Right. But other snakes are operating during the day. Yeah, the temperature driven. Right. Okay. Temperature and sunshine. Right. Right. If, if it's hot, but there's plenty of shade. See, a snakes. 
from my perspective, a snake's operating, prime operating temperature is about 85 degrees. Ah. So whatever is going to allow that snake to be at 85 degrees and, and doing its thing is, is going to be good. Mm, okay. And then, of course, there's the behavior of the prey that they're dependent Correct. upon as well. Um, you mentioned earlier you've been, you've been bit. You, see, you mentioned your first yeah. bites. Yeah. How, do you know how many times you've... Fifteen times. Fifteen times. Yeah. Um, you don't all, forget those. <laughs> really. I've, one of my closest friends was, um, was bit by an uh, asp in India. Yes, and was very close. Yeah, whatever to species death. that's going to be, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it was. It, it was at night in the desert. Yeah. Um, but he was very close to death. Are rattlesnakes? What's a rattlesnake bite like? Yeah, it has. It that all has to do with the venom and again location. Um, the snakes in the United States are basically wimps. Hmm. The snakes compared in, to Australia or someplace like that. The snakes in in South America. Some of them can be more dangerous, but for the most part. American snakes are kind of uh, kind of wimpy, except for the elapid snakes, which are snakes like a cobra is an elapid snake. Mm. They have fixed fangs, so they don't fold back like a rattlesnake does, and they have a primarily neurotoxic venom because they are a cold-blooded prey-eating animal, and the neurotoxins kill the cold-blooded prey well. The hemotoxins kill mammals well. Mm. So depending on where you are and what the feeding conditions, et cetera, like Australia, there are so many reptiles in Australia that reptile eaters just flourish. Right. So the majority, I'm not going to say the majority of the snakes, I, I don't know all the, all the snakes, but when you read about the venomous snakes of, of uh, Australia, they're all elapids. There are no vipers in Australia at all. So a viper is a snake that retracts the fangs. Has retract the folding fangs, retractable right. fangs, yes. Right. And is it true that, uh, I live in Southern California, and uh, I came across a baby rattlesnake on my driveway one day, and uh, it was, yeah, maybe six, seven inches long. Really cute. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Big eyes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was at night, actually. And uh, uh, the next day, the woman who lives down the hill said, yo, be careful. They're, they have as much poison as the full-grown adults. That's that's a myth. Oh, really? Yeah. My, my oh, good, good friend Sandy here, she she has a little line that says, everything you've ever learned about snakes is a myth. It's, really? It's a lie, yeah. Okay, so so the idea that a baby snake biting you is just as deadly as a big size snake. is everything. Size matters. Size matters. So okay. the smaller the snake, the smaller the volume, the shorter oh. the fangs, the oh. less depth penetration. Um, there has been studies done on Mojave rattlesnakes that start out primarily eating lizards. And as adults shift over to mammals, does their venom change? Their venom changes no over the age over their ages. They That's are more neurotoxic. There is more neurotoxins in their venom. They're not huh. neurotoxic, but there's more neurotoxins as in the youngsters. And then, based on where within the range of the Mojave rattlesnake, some populations have very high levels of neurotoxins. Some have very low. And apparently, those those toxins have now been have been uh, registered reported to have changed even in a single individual over a year wow. so this is not a fixed thing right it can vary i mean that's the way nature works right. nature has anything goes right so we're going to try it all right yeah. <laughs> see what works right so what's it like to to be bit by a rattlesnake again uh depends on the size yeah. so so a large rattlesnake this is my biggest bite now you're showing me a hand with three fingers yeah so you lost a finger? Lost a finger to, yeah, to a red diamond in San Diego. I can't even tell which finger you lost. Your index finger? Middle finger. Middle finger? Yeah. 
So the other fingers, fingers just sort of moved yeah, into see, place. Yeah, yeah. See, they're, they're, they they come together because the middle finger is not there anymore. Right. That's you know? interesting. And these are spreading apart because yeah. as I use the hand, it's these like, are it's like losing a teeth and the, the tooth and the other in. teeth just everything fill in. adjusts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Everything adjusts. So this this was my worst bite, and this was a red diamond rattlesnake, which has a very high hemotoxic level. Um, they eat full-grown rabbits, squirrels. Um, Usually, that's, that's what they eat, mm. large rats. And the way that the viper venoms work, vipers with the movable fangs, vipers are rodent eaters, primarily. So what a viper has done, this is, this is an interesting thing in nature, uh, a snake like a king snake will grab onto its prey and coil it up and constrict it and suffocate it and then swallow it. While it's doing that, if the prey is not completely immobilized, it can fight back and create mm. great damage, even death to the potential predator. What the rattlesnakes, the vipers of the world, have done, they've lessened the, in, the, the, the contact with the prey to one bite. So it's a bite, it's a drive the fangs in, it's a squeeze and let go. And that's their whole contact with the prey. Now the prey is in great pain. So that's the first symptom of a rattlesnake bite. Great pain. It makes the thing forget about, get out of here, wah, you know. So it, it runs away. So the venom has to be powerful enough to create that response, powerful enough to make the animal run away, but weak enough to allow the animal to run away, instead of just killing it right there, but powerful enough to digest the animal once it's inside the snake's stomach. So the, the, the hemotoxic venoms in the vipers break down tissue, and they seem to have a strong affinity for blood vessels. So they, go, they create massive instant hemorrhaging, spreading the venom throughout the entire animal. Now the snake is going to swallow, in this case, let's take a full-grown cottontail rabbit. That's a big animal. That's several pounds of, of meat and guts and stuff. Gets down inside the snake, which is only, you know, two, three inches in diameter for a big one cold-blooded animal it has to digest this thing the venom having been injected and distributed throughout the animal begins to break down the tissues inside the snake while the snake is digesting the animal whole from the outside so it really rapidly increases the rate of digestion inside the rattlesnakes vipers all the vipers in the world they're all the same way so when you see a viper it's a thick heavy-bodied animal with a large head because they eat big meals mm. because their venom allows them to digest that meal. That's fascinating. So venom is essentially like a digestive enzyme? It's a digestive enzyme, yes. That's really... Now, why why would it be in the snake's, um, the snake's benefit for the animal to run away? Cause so it can't attack predator. the snake. It can't attack the snake. Oh, I see. So it's not a, a stand-and-defend-yourself right. situation. So, so, so what you're seeing is you've got a... You've got a a four-foot rattlesnake that has just bitten a, a full-grown cottontail. The cottontail runs away 20, 30, 40 feet. That snake can follow the scent of uh, that snake of, all the way over to its prey. Right. And it has now been tested. I, 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 I can't prove this, but I've, been, I've read that it's been tested, that they can actually detect, if you give them several scent paths, they can detect their own envenomation. Wow. Coming out of the scent of the animal that they've bitten. Right. So they know they're following the right animal or whatever it is. Now, what if a coyote comes along and eats that animal before the snake gets to it? The coyote will have a nice meal. It won't die from no. the... You, you can eat, swallow, hemotox, any venom. 
Well, any of the snake venoms. Oh, you can it's, them, it's fine. not toxic it in your not, own digestive right. tract. It is not poisonous if we ingest it. It is poisonous if it gets injected into your bloodstream. Ah, right. So you could actually eat a snake, including the poison yes. reserve, yeah. and that wouldn't... Uh, necess- I wouldn't guess coyotes you. might be another predator of, of snakes. Correct, yes. Yeah, because they're out at night, yeah. certainly. Um, okay, here's another another question that's come to mind. that I, it never I never thought to ask this, but what would be the evolutionary function of rattles? That is a very large question. There's a, there's a new book out right now. It came out this last year called The Rattlesnakes of Arizona. It's a big double volume thing. I think you get the whole thing for about $150 for both volumes. Um, the first volume is Species Descriptions. And I co-authored one of the chapters, and I was I was invited to help because the author who was designed or was designated to do the banded rocks felt that I knew more about them than he did, and I had more uh, litter at you know more in field data on them than he did. Hmm. So I was invited to do this. But the second volume of that has a has a an article on that very question about how the rattlesnake how the rattle came about and one of their theories which i completely disagree with because i should have seen signs of this in the thousands of rattlesnakes that i've seen um somehow or another the rattle is a lure of some kind to a potential predator like you've seen uh, snakes and lizards have colorful tails. Some lizards actually evolve the ability to drop the tail, which saves the life of the animal. So the tail has become kind of a lure away from the head in a lot of species. Rosy boas, when they're being attacked, they roll up into a ball and they elevate their tail up above the wad of snake. And then they crawl to cover while something is chewing the crap out of their, out of their tail. So in my study, they can in, crawl while they're balled up. Yes, yeah. That must yeah. be. That's an amazing thing. Well, th- <laughs> I mean, th- this is. I mean, th- this. Th- this is just snakes are awesome. Yeah. Every scale you see on a snake has musculature attached attached to it. So every single scale is a little teeny hand that can push and twist and whatever. So whatever position they're in, they can move. They can do things. They can, you know, what's called rectilinear motion, which is what most rattlesnakes or a boa, they have all these long scales across their belly. Like a caterpillar, they will lift up a scale, move it forward, put it on the ground, tilt it, and push back. And this goes in a wave, one after another, all the way down the snake's body, while another wave is starting just a few scales ahead of it. So it's this continual wave motion, and it just moves the body forward. That's rectilinear. It seems like like they would need to have much bigger brains to control that that amount of muscular Well, now you're getting into one of my pet topics. I'm a student of consciousness, of are humans really the only animal on earth that's conscious? Absolutely not. So we do not know, we, we think we know, science thinks we're learning all this stuff, which we are, we learn things. But whether you actually get to a truth or learn it all, who knows? I mean, we, we don't even know how the brain functions. We know little bits. Is consciousness really only the, the effect of, a, of an electronic pulse going? Um, you know, I have this theory about, you know, I study life. The, the, the original life forms on this planet supposedly began in some kind of a liquid medium uh, because of the salinity of our blood, probably seawater. And somehow, I think the definition of life is that within this medium, there has to be a container. 
There has to be a border. There has to be a skin. There has to be something holding the individual separate from everything else. That individual has to take in nutrition and get rid of waste material. It has to be able to repair itself when something damages it. It has to be able to, if it's chemical or whatever, recognize food or, or recognize an enemy. Uh, a lot of these single-celled animals, they can move, they can do various things. What regulates this? Is it not some kind of a consciousness? Isn't there, isn't there not a, a thought process that says, I better take care of this? And, and sensory, they don't have any nerves. And yet they know if they're damaged, they know if there's food out there. So there are, there are things taking place that are beyond what science is able to measure at the moment. Not that it's magic. I don't go for magic in any way, shape, or form. I don't do it. But there could very well be a level of consciousness in every living thing that somehow makes it move, makes it do what it does, makes decisions. You can watch any animal and they make decisions. One of the interesting things I do with mine, um, when I encounter, a, in the old days, when you encounter a litter of babies with a mother, the mother dives down the hole. So do the babies. Now what do you got? Nothing. Gone. So I started doing a, an experiment. I'm going to see this snake. I told you I was seeing the females and they didn't leave the den. Mm -hmm. So I'd keep coming back day after day, two, three days a week, and I know where the female is now, so I'm going to sneak up on her. Okay, I sneak up and I watch with the binoculars, I take my pictures, and then I make myself known, but I'm at a distance. Okay, she can see me. Maybe she'll go down the hole, maybe she won't. Stops going down the hole. So next time, she didn't go down the hole last time, I'm going to get a little closer. So instead of coming at, you do this. Yeah. So you're it's in sort the area, but moving you're not toward, but uh, you're not, at an angle. That's yeah. right. You're gradually approaching as you're by going back and forth past them. Yeah. So over the over the months, you get to where you can sit down this far away from a pregnant female just lying out there on the rock. She has learned that you are not a direct threat. The behaviors that you that you keep doing, that's fine. And so there is a decision-making process taking place in there somewhere. She always has a decision to go. And sometimes I do get too close and down they go. And what that has allowed me to do by doing this conditioning of the female, if she doesn't go down the holes, the babies don't go down the hole, and I can get all of their patterns, which are their identifications, which is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can track them later when yes. you encounter them. Well, like I said, the, the original question was, why are there so many of one and the other? Well, how do you know how many there are? Mm. You have to count them. How do you know you're not counting the same take twice? Right. You have to identify have to them identify in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, when you, you said she sees you. Do snakes literally see you, or is that the vibrational no, they, sensing? Yeah, the they, they, they see... I'm not going to say very well because I don't know. I'm not a snake. You know, you have, you have insects. Insects can see. Insects can see. They can smell. They can hear way beyond anything we can even perceive. Yeah. We can't even conceive of what at they can frequencies do. we can't even perceive. And their yeah. size is so small that they can't, don't even have the material to do anything according to our rules. Right. So so what goes on we don't really know. Um, I have an interesting theory about this. Um, you, you know something about human beings. We have the sense of smell. We have a sense of taste. Our taste buds, if I'm correct, only perceive five different things. There's salt, there's sour, bitter, yeah. there's, there's, there's five things. Yeah, and agami or whatever. So, that, so when, you, when you chew your meal and you swallow and it tastes so good, what are you sensing? It's a combination of your nose and your tongue. 
It's the combination. What snakes have is they have eyes similar to ours. They have cones and rods in them like we do. So they see color. They see, they see similar things to what we're seeing in a similar manner to us. A single pupil. Um, they also have two pits. Rattlesnakes have two pits in the front of their face that are infrared receptors. And the nerves to those receptors go up to the optic lobes in the brain. So what I'm thinking is that the optic lobes are blending mm. the two types of images coming in, two types of signals, and they are seeing something similar to what we're seeing, but along with what they're seeing, they are registering temperature right. of what they are seeing. Right. So if you have a snake so in a hot situation and it needs to get thing. from point A to point B, it can see a route around the heat hot spots or whatever, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's what I'm. That's that's what my conclusions are coming to as, hmm. as to how that. Once I learned about how flavor works, I said, "Oh, there you go." That, right. That kind of explains how they put these two things it's together. A syncretic. Since kind they're of. both going to the same optic lobes, they are being seen in the brain together. Right. Yeah. Right. How long do rattlesnakes live? Um, I have one in San Diego that I last saw in 2016. He would have turned, they're, they're all born in the fall, September, October time. He would have turned 26 that year. I have a female banded rock here that I saw in 2013. She would have been 23 in that year, and she gave birth that year. And I, I haven't seen her since, but there's a problem with that in that my back and my knees are going and right about just after, I think that the year that she had the litter at 23, that's, that was the last time that I ever put full amount of time up mm, there. Right. So she might still be there, but I have not had the opportunity to find her. Mm. I, do, I, do I do keep going out to San Diego, and I have not seen that male red since 2016. And do you think, given your, your understanding or, or your, your theories about consciousness, do you think that snakes in captivity suffer from being in captivity? Yeah, I'm going to say yes, and this is all conditional again. Um, I, I have three rattlesnakes in captivity. Again, like I'm, I'm curious. I ask all kinds of questions, and when I have opportunities to investigate it, I, I could be called a Nazi doctor. You know, I'm curious. I want to know what's going on. Now, I don't hurt the snakes. I don't harm the snakes, but I have uh, my friend Sandy. She had a birth that took place in captivity. She had a female western diamondback, and it was caged with a male western diamondback, a male blacktail, and a male Mojave, all rattlesnakes. And over her lifetime, she bred with all three of them. Now, the Mojave and the western mm. diamondback are known to have hybrids in, mm. in nature. That are fertile? That, I don't think, is a question that has been answered mm. with, the, with the Mojaves. So, with the, with the blacktail, the blacktail are, they're a, they're a different group of rattlesnakes supposedly. I mean, we don't know what goes on with them. Um, there are several species that go all the way down into Mexico, including our blacktail rattlesnake here, the timber rattlesnake of the East Coast. They're all sort of a yellowish snake with a black tail. So they're all kind of in the same grouping. And that's different from the diamonds and the coontails that we have out here. So I was curious, so I kept three of the babies, and another friend of mine kept another three. We each kept two females and a male, and we bred them. Mine have produced offspring, which I've bred into each other, that also produced offspring. So I have F3s now. Uh, Robert, I think he has some F2s. He's never bred the F2s together. But we know that they do produce fertile offspring 
that hybridization, which at one level, this is a, this is a level of science that I grew up with in college, the definition of species was an animal that bred and produced viable offspring, mm-hmm. offspring right. that could produce. So possibly all or a large number or even just a few of the rattlesnake species that we call are still technically in the same species. Right. They haven't diverged far enough yet that they can't still interbreed, even though they do not really look the same or even act the same. Now, if you took those young and released them into the wild, would they know how to survive? Yes, I believe everything, except some mammals, I would say. Mammals, maybe birds at some level, too. It's just, you know, some some animals seem to be fully competent at birth and some are not. Yeah. Snakes are probably fully competent, competent at birth. They, um, I was talking about how they kind of, the, 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 the females and the, and the baby rattlesnakes, vipers, all the vipers of the world do this, uh, some pythons, et cetera. The female stays with the young for a while. I don't think there's any teaching going on. Mm. It, it may be a the presence of the female acts as a protector. Right. There's another thing. Uh, I'm, I'm also a student of energy. Um, I believe that energy and consciousness equate because consciousness is energy. Mm-hmm. So is energy consciousness? Do they do they go back and forth? Um, I kind of believe that they do. You've you've heard of twinergy twins that oh. are born that are just have this connection that yeah. seems to be a little bit supernatural yeah. whatever i call that a sharing of energy they, yeah. they've been connected in some way shape or form within the womb including with the mom moms tend to have some some kind of a supernatural knowledge of their children as well the, the baby's intuition. in distress and the mom knows it she goes yeah. so this this may be nothing more than energy a message being transported on energy so what i see in these in these newborn rattlesnakes which are what i see of course Inside the mom, they're all in the ovarian tubes together, and they're in mom. So they're all circulating this energy. When they're born, for the first couple of days, you always see them in contact with each other, mom and babies. And over the two-week period that it takes for the shed process to take place and the skin to come off, the the babies begin to separate. Hmm. So now you got one here, you got one here. This is all within, you know, two, three feet of each other. But they're, Hmm. they're still together, but they're now becoming independent. Right. And then when they shed the skin, boom, off they go. Every once in a while, you see a shed one still with the others, but usually the shedding frees them. And then you come back and all the babies are gone, mom's gone too. So whatever was holding them all together is now finished. Hmm. Keep doing the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> you get some Italian blood in you. <laughs> uh, what about uh, mating? How do snakes, rattlesnakes mate? This is uh, another question. The, the set. It is assumed that the sense of smell through the tongue of snakes and a lot of lizards as well is their primary sense. You and I see the world with our eyes. Smell, hearing that adds things, but the eyes are the primary. It is assumed that snakes, the tongue is the primary. You can blind a snake and it can still function fine. Hmm. You cut its tongue off and it's, it's dead. It's, it's dead meat. Hmm. In the roof of the mouth is an organ called a Jacobson's organ, and it has two grooves in it. So the snake tick sticks the tongue out, and the tongue is forked so that it has surface area 
that can be put into these grooves and, and dragged through the groove, groove where the sensing is taking place. Mm. And then the message goes to the brain. Mm. Do they also have a sense of smell? Possible. Wow. This, this is, so, so the sense, uh, sense or the sense, the uh, neurons aren't in the tongue. They're in the they're grooves. They're in the organ. Yes. That's yes. fascinating. Now there may be, sen- there may be a sense of taste as well, a, yeah. a sense of t- the, the tongue sensation, but I don't know that that's ever been measurable, huh. measured or how it would be measurable. But, so it's taking a sample of the environment and then running it through the sensor. Through the sense organ. Wow. Yep. Yep. Huh. So, and how does this relate to mating? They, they, well, it, and this happens in a restricted period, I imagine. How they find one another. Right. Um, it, is, it is kind of assumed that the females moving throughout their territory, if they become fertile, I don't, they don't ovulate yet. They need, this, this is separate. Captive breeding has shown that the male, the male courting the female creates the ovulation. Oh, that okay. stimulates the ovulation. Triggers now it. the now the eggs have to be fertilized. So in the snake situation, the courtship takes place. The sperm gets deposited inside the female. Ovulation takes place. Fertilization may or may not take place at that time. The like a a, a king snake in San Diego, fertilization takes place. The eggs are laid eight ten weeks later, and they go through their ten week process and they hatch. The snakes that I study here. They are mated in our monsoon time, which is July and August, and then the female goes into hibernation. She goes to wherever her birth den is going to be, the hibernaculum rookery. She goes to that den where she's going to give birth the following year, and she does not, she probably eats through the fall, goes to her den, and then does not eat for the entire year or drink water for the entire year until she gives birth in monsoon time again. So mating to birth is a year. Wow. And it is believed, and I think we have some proof, I have one situation that probably to to myself proves it, is that the fertilization does not take place until the spring when the female comes up and starts basking, warming up for the summer. Now Now the fertilization takes place. Now ovulation takes place. Which creates fertilization. So she's holding those she, sperm she's cells? She's holding sperm until she ovulates for six in six months. And somehow they stay viable for six months in her body. Yeah. So, so, so if, she's, if she made it in August, we'll say the later one, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, you're right, five or six months. Hmm. I keep doing four. <laughs> I keep doing four. <laughs> you, people, you don't, forget. people aren't getting the you jug. Forget. They don't yeah. see. Yeah, my brother-in-law cracked <laughs> That's up. That's funny. He asked me something, and I said four. <laughs> yeah, holding up three, the three remaining fingers. <laughs> How old were you when you lost that finger? Um, that was 63, so it was just a, 2011, 62, 63, huh. Huh. whatever, I, whatever right. I was then. Right, Yeah. Wow. Um. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and how do they So so you mentioned courtship. Do do different males compete to to be with the female? Yeah, do there, they there, fight? Or? There is something there is a type type of competition that is called combat in snakes. In king snakes and some other species it actually is a biting and a wrestling and a fighting taking place. In rattlesnakes, the vipers and I don't know about cobras. I I just don't know not mm. enough about cobras. Rattlesnakes are my specialty, but they they do what's called um, a combat dance. And if you've seen the medical symbol of the two snakes twined together, right. that is a male combat dance taking place. So they elevate their body off the ground, entwine to a degree, 
and what they're attempting to do is one of them will gain supremacy over the other and then shove a wave of shoving down their body and slam the other snake to the ground. Wham! Wham! And this goes on for until somebody gives up and takes off. And so, they do this in front of the female? I don't know that it's ever been proven that the female needs to be present. Uh, so it's not I, I don't a know display. that that's been proven. Yeah. Um, because the huh. combats, are, you can find combats, I don't, but other people can find combats. That's not one of my lucks, finding combats. Mm. And, and I, don't think that's, I don't think it's always found a female, whatever. But a female must be nearby. To so so what, getting it. back to the chemo reception, the males in doing their thing should probably come across the trail, the scent trail of a female who is fertile but has not ovulated. Mm. So there's a different chemistry taking place here than, than some other animals mm -hmm. that the ovulation creates a change. So something in her alerts him that she is vi that she's fertile. And he, he apparently follows her trail. And this is, a tr this is a technique used in a lot of snake researchers. They'll put a transmitter in a female and lo and behold, that she attracts males. So the males find the female somehow. And then... Uh, Depending on whether there's one or, or more males there or not, a combat may or may not take place. It may be it may take place either before or after a mating. Uh, mm. I don't know enough about that to, to say. But um, if there's two combat, if there's two males, they may or may not combat. I've had males together and they don't combat. Um, he will begin to court the female, and what usually takes place is he'll approach her, and there's a there's a what I call a herky jerky type of emotion where he's touching her. And he's doing this thing, which is some sort of a signal, some kind of a communication to the female. And you see it not necessarily only in courting pairs. It can be a strange snake encounter another. So it's sort of a caution. Hey, I'm just, you know, easy, easy. And it's rubbing up against the other it, snake? It's, it's a touching and a rubbing and a herky-jerky type of emotion. Right. This takes place in, in a strange encounter, and it also takes place in courtship. And then as the, as the male... Now, again, almost everything I'm saying is, is based on rattlesnakes from my point of view. Sure. That's all I know about. Right. Um, and even then, I don't know anything. But, but, um, so the male, he'll, he'll do this. I've, I've seen a, a courtship last for about a week. The male will do these things, and the female sometimes will run. It may not be this first time. It may be sometime during this week of interaction. She will run away. And I don't know if anybody else has ever found it, encountered this thing, but I've encountered it and filmed it, videoed it uh, several times in the snakes. And I just call it hide and seek. The female takes off. And, and what the, first, the first real encounter I have had of it was a female ridge nose. And the, male, the female ran away. And so the male starts tracking her. Once, he's out, once she's out of sight, he's, he's lost her. So he starts tracking her by scent. And he's doing this very careful, herky-jerky, tongue-flicking examination of her trail, staying on her trail. And I watched him for about three hours, and he made this big 75-foot loop and ended up back in this very, almost the same stones he came from. So the, I lost track of the female quickly. She disappeared somewhere. So he, but he followed her in this whole thing. And I've encountered males doing that same search thing. And, and you watch them, and for several hours, and they get more and more frantic. Where the hell is she? <laughs> ah, so they're not being careful anymore. Uh. I'm standing right there, and they're, uh, I'm moving. I'm doing everything. And they've lost all their, self of, their, their sense of self-preservation. Wow. It's all this, right. I have to find this female, whatever it is. And uh, so that's, that's kind of the hunt and seek, or the, the hide and seek scenario which, again, I've seen it several times, so I know it exists, uh, at least in the ones that I've studied. Um, 
both here and in San Diego. So both the Reds there and the Banded Rocks and Ridgenos out here do it. Um, the, the, the male, if he re-encounters her, and this may not take place every time, the hide-and-seek, I don't know. When he re-encounters her, he, he becomes more frantic in his motions, hmm. rubbing, and, and he won't leave her alone. And he'll climb up on top of her. She'll be coiled up pressing. He'll be on top of her just doing all this, wake up, babe, God damn it, blah, blah, blah. You know? and, and part of what's happening toward the end of this, he's putting his tail underneath her tail and lifting her tail up. Hmm. And if she wants to accept him, after doing this for a while, she will open her vent. He can't rape her. He can't force himself into her. Hmm. His, he has two penises, and they're, down, they're, they're stored inside out down in the tail, like a hollow glove finger, hmm. two of them. So he, hydraulic pressure, pops them out. So they have no force. They can't push. Mm-hmm. So they get inside of her, and then, and then they... Both of them in her vent? One. Oh, one of them, okay. One, he has one on either side, so they, they mate side to side. Uh, okay. Most reptiles side do to side. I believe right. most reptiles have two penises and they do the same side to side. But they're vent. only one vent. One vent, yeah. Mm. And, and they both, it's called a cloaca, which is a... Oh, like chickens have a cloaca. It's a common right. opening which other things drain into right. and then a vent on the outside which dumps everything out. Oh, so it's a for for um, uh, uh, for shitting. Excrement as well, yeah, yes. Excrement as well yeah, as the Urethra birth. comes down, right. empties into that, the... The right. rectum empty, empties into that, okay. and the ovarian tubes right. and testes all empty into that same thing. Right. Nope. Huh. The testes would not. The testes would go oh, through the, the penis. Through the yeah. penis right? yeah. All right. So, so, so he, she accepts him. And she accepts he, him. He gets inside of her, and he blows up. And on each of the hemipene are these soft little spines, oh, yeah. which prevent him from coming out. Uh-huh. And dogs have yeah. a similar thing. They get stuck That's together. They get they stuck, can't, right. Yeah. So they are stuck together for a while. Huh. And I've, I've seen them stuck together in the wild for three hours. And at this point, I left because the female was aware of me and she was starting to get nervous. Mm. Male couldn't care less, but the female was getting <laughs> nervous. So she starts crawling toward cover, right. basically dragging him along by his cock. So <laughs> he, he can crawl backward and try to keep up with her, but it's an awkward, funny looking thing. No. Whether there's pain or not, I have Fred no Astaire, idea. But he is not. So I said, I'm yeah. out of here. I'm going to save that guy some, has some, some yeah. harassment and leave. So I left. So I don't know how long they've actually stayed together in the various species but i've read up to 12 hours they, mm. they can be stuck together i wonder that 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 penis enlargement thing in, in being stuck is to my knowledge is generally seen as a defense against other males inseminating her shortly after him he, but potentially he, yes he and, that, and, and there would spot. also be a thing sometimes some species create a plug right yeah the, the, uh, the sperm uh, creates a plug exactly yeah so do you know can the female uh be impregnated by several or, or not impregnated well, but she can mate with several and i've encountered several. that several times i've had both the male with multiple females uh-huh. and the female with multiple males in a spring situation so if several males inseminate that female i wonder if it's a situation like with cats where she could have a litter where some of the young are from one male and some are from another. I, I believe that litter. has been now proven to be. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I, I did a I did a thing. I'm, I'm, this was last year. I was reading about um, I was reading about humans, and this the study has been shown in humans that. See, my question was how much in the sperm? How much does the sperm contribute to the egg the, once it's fertilized? Is it only the DNA? And apparently what they've found is that other material can create, you can, have, you can have characteristics of, say, a black person mates with a white person, and another white 
So they have a, a black father, a white father. You can have traits of both fathers in the children of the female from one fertilized egg. So what would normally happen, what we normally would believe is you could have, they both could have sex all the time, but only one of their sperm could enter the egg and, right. and affect the egg's, you know, characteristics, yeah. the baby's right. characteristics. But they are finding now that that is not the case. They are Really? Yeah. I haven't heard about that. That's so, so, so some of the material radical. is... Radical. Some of the material is coming from outside the egg as well it may not be it may not be and like i said i'm not sure on this i'm not i'm not positive because this yeah. was something i read last summer and i haven't really done a lot of research so if it. i understand what you're saying your understanding is that if a woman has sex with a black guy and a white guy in the same ovulatory cycle some of the biological essence of, of those two men can, can be, be present in the, in in the spring. one child yes I gotta track that yeah. down. If check, check it up, yeah, and I, I'll tell, that's fascinating. I need to have. Well, I have your email. Yeah, I'll yeah. go back and I'll find if, it. If you remember, I'd love and to, and know. I'll send it to you. Because what that is—that's the biological equivalent of partible paternity, which uh, in Sex at Dawn we write about this. It's the belief among many people that a f that that a fetus is literally made of accumulated semen, and so a woman who wants to have a child who's funny and smart and good-looking and a good hunter has sex with the funny guy and the smart guy and the good-looking guy and the good hunter to get the essence of each of those men. Yeah. And so they believe that a child can have multiple fathers. Yeah. And we've always sort of, as you know, modern scientists, laughed at that. Yeah. And here you are saying possibly that's actually yeah. biologically... Accurate. That man. That's yeah, this is something I will follow up on, but I will right away. I'll I'll send you that that you know it's an email thing I went to. I, oh, I just sure. asked the question and you right. Oh, okay. It's like a forum or something. Well, not so much a forum. It's just it's just some paper that some I think it was a female doctor had done this study, huh. and these are her conclusions that right. it, it seems to be more than just the not just, just the, the DNA packet. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's doing it. So I'll send you that. Yeah, and 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 if this goes on the air, you have to be sure to. I'll clarify whether yeah, whether yeah. which way it goes because sure. we're we're creating we're problems. We're just a couple of guys says. talking here. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's the listeners that are the problem. <laughs> you put, They're you on put, their own. You put a thought in their mind yeah. and they start going wild on it. And well, you yeah. kind of want to be accurate, I think. Yeah, yeah, but but the other thing, the nice thing about a podcast is it's not a publication. It's it's a conversation, yeah. and yeah. so I get things wrong sometimes, and it's great because people will write in and say, "Hey, you you said the author of this." book was you know yeah. voltaire it was actually you know whatever goethe yeah. or whatever I, I fuck up all the time yeah. it's yeah, it's great yeah. um man we've been going for uh almost two hours now and it's been fascinating i i really enjoy this yeah. um I don't you keep going or stop or whatever you want to do. I'm I'm, I'm fine. I'm I'm enjoying you're all right? your company. I'm yeah. enjoying our conversation. Good, so. good. Well, we we can continue that with the mics off. Um so, so uh, what else was there? There were stakes. There was I wanted to talk a little bit about just your approach to life and your uh you know, your minimalism and your sort of what I consider to be wisdom because I I have always felt that you know, there are two currencies. There's money and time. And you can always get money. Yeah. You can never get time. Yeah. So I see people selling their time for money, and I just think, 
Don't you see what you're doing? You whores, know, world full of whores. Uh, whores, not just their time, everything. Yeah, and no insult to whores, by the way, You're or correct, sex workers yeah. of any of any kind. But you're selling it so cheap, and it's so precious. Yeah. Um, so what do you, what do you uh, not only with the snakes, but I, I gathered you're sort of the way you live, very close to close to the the bone. Uh, what what are your thoughts on death and spirituality and those sorts of things? I think about it a lot. Um, I actually study the Bible not as a religious text. So I don't I don't believe in magic, so I have this this filter, this limiter, that I have to try to understand what the people that believe in Judaism or Christianity or Islam in in those cases or other religions in other cases, which I don't study much of. Um, to me, there's kind of a mystery involved, and, and I don't really know what it is. You know, I'm, I'm a student of, of humans as well. Um, I, I don't know if, well, I think, um, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not a student of paleo man. I'm study of pre-paleo man. I want to know where we came from, not what we've been. Um, it seems to me, let's see, in my reading, I just read, um, I read uh, Origins... Reconsidered by Richard uh, um, Leakey. Leakey, yes. yeah. It was it, he wrote it back in the ni- in '93 or so. But this is the second time I've read it, and uh, you, know, you reread something, you just got all kinds of stuff you didn't get last time. And um, he he talks about how, like we've we have apparent we apparently have had the uh, <laughs> we've had the ability to speak probably since um, Homo erectus. And, and this is kind of based on um, the location of the larynx in the throat. Which is so hard to judge Soft from tissue. fossils. Soft tissue, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and add to that the culture. And can the culture actually be spread without communicating in some way, shape, or form other than just mimicking, physically mimicking something you're seeing? Um, so he is, he is of the belief of which I am that we communicate, hum, homo sapien, we communicate all this stuff verbally and we are, we are raised in a situation where we trust the people that tell us stuff hmm. because basically our lives depend on it. The safety of the village, which I consider the primal human group is a small related village mostly made up of adult females and their Mm. offspring and relatives and the odd males that come in from time to time and stay or leave or whatever um so we seem to have what i will call um curiosity as part of our intelligence you see it in a lot of animals they're curious we seem to have the ability which cannot be measured in other animals whether they have it or not, who knows? But we have an imagination. And within that imagination, when we don't quite understand or know something, we come, we come up with, a, with an answer. We, we finish the question to our satisfaction. And I think that is the beginning of what we would call religions or spirituality. Like I said, I believe in, I believe in conscious energy, energy and consciousness. I believe in modern science I believe there are fields of science that we are pretty good at and fringe ones that we're not very good at. Like, uh, like I don't believe in, um, I don't believe that all the galaxies are accelerating away from Earth, 
why the hell would that be happening? And and what powerful what what motive what power can cause a, a, a galaxy to accelerate? I don't see it. I think it's a misreading of of. Um, um, can't think of the term it's going right now of the data of the, the no the you know the spectrum oh, spectral yeah. we we say if it's turning blue it's coming toward us if it's uh, if right. it's shifted to the red side right. it's going so the more it's shifted the faster it's going away and yeah. so it it may be a misunderstanding of what's going on there we yeah. we see part of it but and we're applying it to everything and it may not apply to everything certainty is always misplaced yeah i I, 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 I say i believe in truth with a small t yeah I don't believe in capital T truth at all. Yeah. So I think I, I think that we have in us like one of, one of the nicest things I found one of the first times I read the Bible is is Moses is talking to God one of his first times and 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 not can't be his first time because he's talking about the people God has already offered to mm. you can be my people if you do do what I want and uh, so Moses is saying what, what what should the people call you what what I am mm. isn't that everything. Is, mm. Everything has an I am to it. Hmm. Is that eternal? Who knows? Because, you know, I have some friends that I talk about life after death. She's kind of concerned with life after death. And I say, well, there may be life after death. But I don't think, I don't think Chris Ryan is going to be aware of himself after death. But I am Hmm. is going to be aware of itself after death, Hmm. taking on its new identity, being whatever it is. Is energy destructible apparently not according to the laws of physics so it is possible if energy equates with consciousness that consciousness continues in whatever form the energy is chosen to take yeah. it could be a rock it could be a, a an atom of something it could be me you it could be anything and whatever that thing is its needs create the need for some sort of a controlling uh director directorship hmm. and that could be what our consciousness is is a controlling directorship we have i call it we fill our heads with so much bullshit nowadays you, you take a I, th- I think on your on the cover of that last book or at least one of the pictures you're showing the the, the san people the kung people in, hmm. in africa which i consider to be in my lifetime one of the most primitive people ever discovered and where was I going with this? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Where was it? We were talking the consciousness. Controlling consciousness and uh, I am. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Get, Have you, getting it, old sucks. I'll uh, tell you right now. Day, I, 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 <laughs> the way I justify it is that the older you get, the more you've got in there. And yeah. so accessing it and keeping it. You find that, it? I got it. Yeah. All right. What was it? The Kung people have a very simple life. Yeah. All the, all the people you find in the Americans, the primitives, they're all called simple. That's because their head's not full of shit. Yeah. We have so much crap in our head that takes up all our mental capacity and time that we can no longer see the world around us. What Frank Herbert, what senses do we lack that we can't sing the kingdom of heaven all around us? Mm. I mean, we live in heaven. Yeah. And, and most, of cult- most of culture considers us the enemy. Yeah. Civilization is the war against nature. Yeah. Nature is where it's at. Yeah. But nature is where we're at, like yeah. it or not. Yeah. Have you, do you have any insights on why the serpent is such a central figure in the Bible? I kind of do. This, this is. Is it the underworld that it's, it's coming from the, the no, darkness? No, I don't, I don't believe that's it. Um, man evolved in Africa. 
And Africa has a lot of deadly snakes hmm. that will kill man if man steps on them or grabs them or whatever. You have to assume at some point humans started eating snakes because they do today, primitive people. So they would have at some time. People are going to get bit from time to time and people are going to die from time to time depending on what that animal is. Why the snake got got you know, why not the lion? We, the, the Bible talks about lions, but it doesn't necessarily say it's some kind of an evil thing. But the serpent some, somehow seems to have been made evil. Why that is, I don't know. Humans evolved in the presence of serpents, snakes, but also leopards, lions, hyenas, everything else that was killing us and eating us. But why the serpent got, got segregated out in that culture? I do not know. You go to yeah. you go to um, uh, maybe Thailand. I'm forgetting where it is, but there are temples. They're just covered in these vipers mm. because they don't consider them to be negative. They consider them to be positive. So to me, mm. it's the culture that is doing the doing the choosing based on whatever the stories. And this is what it all comes down to. That's why I was talking about the vocal. You tell a story and the people believe it. The yeah. children believe it and they grow up in that paradigm again. So uh, that's that's what I think is going on in the in the various values that that cultures and people have. I remember reading somewhere, and may, maybe this is a myth, um, but I, I think this was scientifically validated that um, the snake is the only animal that you can show an image of it to a human infant and a chimpanzee infant, and they'll both freak out. I would disagree with that completely. Really. And not because I know anything about showing the images. My friend Sandy and I, we've done education of kids here for the entire 25 years that I've been here. Me, not so much anymore, but she's still strong into it. The younger the child, they'll, they'll walk right up to you. We, we, we take snakes. Hmm. And we're, we're standing, you know, like at a fair or whatever. And we're, we got some snakes out. Kids come up, the adults, half, half the adults don't even want to approach. They want right. to get near. Right. The children have no fear at all. If they have any fear, huh. within a couple of minutes of holding the snake, it's all gone. So it is not an instinctual fear of snakes. All it right. is a learned fear going back to you know what I call the original sin. Right. Why do people have original sin? Because the parents put it into them. It's not so original. Not is so it? original. Yeah. All right. Well, that's interesting. I'm glad, I'm glad I remembered to mention that because I've been repeating that. Uh, as fact, but uh, I mean, I'm sure I read somewhere that it was an instinctive fear and unique in that sense because you can show a kid yeah. a lion and they'll be yeah. whatever. It's but a, uh, again, today with the internet, and yeah. this is one of my biggest frustrations, you can verify anything you want to on yeah. the same subject. We have <laughs> we have a water problem here in, in the but see San that, Valley. But this is why it's valuable. You have experience with it. Yes. And I value your experience yeah. over whatever I'm going to read on the yeah. internet. So Yeah. From my yeah. from my point of view, y the younger the child is, the less fear they have. And that fear, again, based on how young they are, can be overturned in a matter of minutes mm. because experience overpowers word of mouth right. in younger people. Right. Older people begin to doubt. They begin to question. Right. Okay, so last thing before I let you uh, give you some coffee and water or whatever, <laughs> and oranges or whatever we have for you over here. Um, practical knowledge. Uh, I was stung by a scorpion once, and uh, it was sort of my 1976 experience. It was a transformative event in my life. Uh, 
And when that happened, I thought back to my snake, you know, woodsman, woodscraft, and like, what should I do? Should I, you know, cut the the hole and try to suck the venom out, which apparently later has was discredited, and the tourniquet, which does more harm than good. What's the state of knowledge these days? If you get, if you're out hiking in the in the desert and you happen to step on a rattlesnake, okay, this is kind of the simple rule. This bite, this finger. He's holding up his three-fingered hand this here. Is, this is the only bite that the snake tore the skin so it bled afterward. Uh-huh. Usually they don't bite. Usually they don't bleed. You get maybe a little drop of blood and that's it. Right. Everything is inside your skin yeah. and it was put there by a hype, two hypodermic needles. Right. Which barely broke the surface. Right. Now on those needles is some bacteria. So you're getting some bacteria along with the venom. If you take a knife and you cut through that opening, you are exposing the entire inside of those cuts to not only the bacteria that was on the snake's mouth, but all the bacteria in the air as well. So the first rule of there is do not cut. The reason for cutting was this is going to kill me. Get it out of me. Right. Cut the hand off, cut the whatever it takes to for me to survive, do it. That was the original theory. It has now been, especially with rattlesnakes, remember we have the wimpy, we have the wimpy venomous snakes of the world in the Americas. Rattlesnakes, from my conversations with both veterinarians and doctors that treat bites, they both agree that in an un, an, every case, or in, in cases of untreated bites, survival is 80%. So there's 20% chance of death, 80% chance of living. And that's related to if you have a heart condition or... Children are more likely to die than uh, the full-grown adult. Size matters. Because you're just dispersed Size in the matters. blood. Big snake, small human, Diluted. bigger yeah. problem. Little right. snake, big human, less problem. Less problem. So yeah. there's not so much a, a child's chemistry is more vulnerable. It's just the size and yeah. the overwhelming. Right. What a rattlesnake venom is designed to do is cause massive hemorrhaging, tissue destruction, and the beginning of digestion. Hmm. So you are being consumed by this stuff. So what it does is it's destroying tissue inside of you. You let bacteria in. You've got a massive problem. That's why I lost the finger. I lost the finger not from the snake bite. The snake bite was over within 10 days. The finger was infected, and mm. it ended up dying. Mm. So it had to be removed. So, mm. so you're bit on the leg. Do you, you, do you're you, bit on the leg. Do nothing. Nothing. Don't put a tourniquet on it. You no put tourniquet. a tourniquet on it. It, dry, it. it cuts the blood flow, which begins killing cells. And it also prevents the venom from being distributed through the rest of your body where it gets diluted. So you have small amounts of damage taking place over a large area of your body instead of a large amount of damage in a small place. Now, again, if this stuff was going to kill you, then you don't want to do that. So with a rattlesnake, it's not going to kill you. 80% survival untreated. You don't worry about that. What you you do is you go to a car and depending on... Your ballsiness, depending on how curious you are as to what's going to happen to me with this bite, you go to a hospital. If you go to a hospital, fork out 50 grand just to walk through the doors. 50,000, that's just for the anti-venin. What? That doesn't even count the hospital costs, just the anti-venin. You're going to get 10 vials of anti-venin. That's that's the standard policy for most hospitals. $5,000 a vial. And you have to inject that over... given period period of time yes yeah wow all right or you go home and or, or you go home it out I've, I've i've gone to the hospital twice on bites now three 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 times actually the first bite was a baby sidewinder i was trying to force feed it was my first bite 
So my girlfriend said, we better go do this, you know, let's check it out. The doctor laughed at me, gave me a cup of ice, go home. Good. Oh, cool. So, and not a $50,000 bill. Right. So my first, my first lesson was, it's not that big of a deal. So I started researching it, and I read a book by, um, what was his name, fin- Russell Finley, who at that time was considered to be the world's leading expert on rattlesnake bite. And he says the rattlesnake bites are rarely fatal. So my ballsiness increased. So the next time I got bit with the same girlfriend was out in the desert by a bigger snake. I didn't even let her know because she would have freaked out. So I just, mm. I didn't say anything. So the hand swells a bit and you're, you're swollen up for a week or two or about a week for that. And then, uh, my first really bad bite was a adult banded rock rattlesnake. And that got the whole arm all the way up to the shoulder, hugely swollen, massively painful. Just in, you, you can't even sleep. You can't let it touch anything because hmm. the pain is so intense. And that one, uh, I rode out. I, I was going to, I was go, going back to the college, my return trip, and I was going to class that evening. And so I went to class with the bite, and it was a biology class, so it became sort of an interesting topic among show and tell, show and tell type thing. <laughs> so everybody was watching me, you know, a two, three hour class in the evening. Uh, <laughs> Is he going to die and, in and class? And the hand keeps getting bigger and bigger. Oh my and bigger. God. I'm popping two aspirin every two hours. And it's, it's, uh, it was kind of a fun little thing. And <laughs> the next morning, a different girlfriend was now so concerned that we went to the hospital hmm. and they did the full works. So they started pumping me full of anti-venin and, um, uh, they kept me in for two days until the swelling started going down, but I was never—I I never felt any kind of symptomatic. There was—I was never sick. It was just a, a, an injured limb, is all that I was encountering. Is it important to not do something that increases uh, circulation? Uh, it, now you're, here you're going to have the problems. You've got people that experience bite, and you've got people that don't experience bite. But look at it from a medical point of view. Right. A medical point of view, I, it, it took a long time to get the medical people to say, don't cut and tourniquet. It took a long time because their view was, from their point of view, it's going to kill you. So, and you can't suck the venom out. You, you cannot suck the venom out, no. Right. Yeah, it goes right into the cells and it's not just floating in a pool. And, right. Yeah. It, um, so my theory, what I do, in, every time I get bit, the, the arm gets elevated. By elevating the arm, you're getting the blood and whatever swelling is trying to form out of the wound area. You're getting it into the rest of the body and miraculously enough, the pain drops by 50%. So you actually want to dilute it. Uh, I do. Yeah. I do. This is not advice for anybody else in the world. This is, yeah. I, I'm living this life to test the life. I want to know who I am and what I can take. Hmm. That, that's, that's the whole thing. If, you, if that's the way you want to do it, fine, but don't don't blame me. <laughs> and you're getting bit on the hands primarily. Always, always the hands because I handle them. Yes. Okay. I have never even been close to being accidentally bitten. Nothing has ever struck at me, except at my hands when I'm messing with them. Right. I've been very close to them. I've, I've my foot has been a couple inches from them, lying coiled on the ground, and they just lay there calmly. In most cases, if they do respond, they start backing away. Yeah. And as long as you hold still. If you haven't been bit yet, you're probably not going to get bit. Because they're not attacking they're you. They're not attacking you. Right. You're it's a huge animal defensive. that's going to kill them if, you don't, if, yeah. if they don't save themselves. So if you do any kind of motion at all, it has to be slow motion, very slow motion, and step backward. Move away from the animal. They will let you move away. They will not let you move closer. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the so generally, if you if you if people are out hiking and let's say uh, it's a dark night uh, and they see a snake on the trail, just stay away from it. Obviously, just go around it. Yeah, go around it. Yeah. It's not going to chase. It's either you. moving in a direction, you go the other way, or it's holding still and you go around it. Right, and uh, definitely don't try to pick it up. Don't try to pick it up unless you're nuts like I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how this all started. I caught my first snake at seven, and I've been hooked ever since. Yeah. Every snake I've ever seen, not in recent times, but up until halfway through my life, they all had to be picked up. They all had to be handled. Hmm. So whatever whatever happened, happened, and I just learned how to not get bitten by picking up the poisonous ones. Do you think snakes are capable of, of emotion? Again, it comes down to the function of emotion in the animal in the environment. What, why, why do we latch up? I mean, I, I know you comment, comment on that in your book, is why we either hook up or do not hook up or have temporary hookups or whatever we do. Um, to me, emotion is kind of a, it's, it's a linking to a common feeling, a common cause, and the ultimate, the ultimate positive result of that cause is the caring for of either a child or another person you are watching out for them it's beneficial to them that you have an emotional response to them and it, and it works both ways and when you when you you can give emotion but if you don't receive it the value of the person you're giving it to is not as strong as if they're giving it back their value increases so i think this is a i'm going to call it a bonding but I'm not going to say bonding for life. I do, not, I do not believe that humans are designed to bond for life. Most primitive cultures, I'm, I'm sure you read primitive cultures, the male is constantly leaving. He has things to do that have nothing to do with the household. Ask any military wife. He's always out there with the guys. Even when he's home, he's golfing. He's always he's, he's there with the guys. That's where the real powerful bonding takes place hmm. and then the women that are left behind the female that are left behind and the children they are bonding so the male female bonds are probably weaker than the male to male bonds and the and the women to women and children bonds yeah in my perspective and and with snakes it seems like if there is an emotional bond it would be the mother and that litter that is sticking close by or those first few weeks another friend of mine we'll call her melissa she is studying Arizona black rattlesnakes, and she started her own website called Social Snakes because what she is finding is that they are very social compared to any of the snakes that I study. Huh. She has dens of them where you have males and females and youngsters from multiple years. She does, she does the same thing I do. She identifies them by pattern. She sets up videos the way I do where you can watch their behaviors no when you're not kidding. there. And she is seeing what she considers to be socialization and... Um, um, Almost like an extended family. Extended family. I, I, yeah. There's a term for that. I couldn't think of the name of it. Yeah. Um, she's seen family members... That's fascinating. Uh, ...males and females with the young of a different female, um, showing coming back, hanging, like babysitting. There's, there seems hmm. to be some level of sociality in, in some snakes. But they can't possibly share food, given the way they eat. Correct. So there's that's out. So food getting is probably whatever instinct has, has planted in you is what you're going to do. Right. And one, there's I, I imagine there's never been a case where like like where a mother 
a leopard teaches the young to kill, right? Where she'll maybe kill prey and then the young will come and eat it. That can't happen with snakes. So, Correct. You know, even though the, the rabbit might run off, the young aren't going to go Correct. then and eat the mother's yeah, kill. They, they eat the prey whole, so there is no sharing of meal. Yeah. And, and from my point of view, again, most snakes... See, the Arizona black is a member of the prairie rattlesnake group, the Crot- Crotalus viridis, which were found, I don't know if they still exist anymore, I don't think in the numbers, but they used to find dens up in the cold states, thousands, hmm. thousands of snakes together in a single place. Um, whether that is based on, it is the only place that any snake can possibly survive the winter, so only the ones that come here survive, hmm. or if there's some sociality in, involved with it, hmm. The black is that same species, different subspecies, and there is sociality in them. So it is possible that there is sociality, more sociality in some species than others, and that that is is what we see in the in the denning behaviors or whatever. The snakes I encounter, they're all loners. The mm-hmm. only time you see two see two see two snakes together is during courtship. Sometimes, like I said, I can my dens would be up on that hillside. I can find a hundred snakes up there. But I'll never find two of them together unless they're courting, something like that. Right. Otherwise, they're they're all loners. They don't get together in multiple numbers like my Western Diamondbacks do here. Right. Do you, have you found a way to make a living doing this, or is this all just totally? Yeah, it's just me. Just. Yeah, it's, <laughs> just it's just. It's just a. It's if 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 we are born with a program. Once I discovered mine, I knew what it was, and I've been on it ever since. So that nineteen seventy six. This is this is my path through life. Yeah. yeah, and you don't do like uh, consulting or if people have snakes, you'll come and take them away. And, oh I mean, yeah, there... well that's how this this new Western Diamondback den of mine started that way. Uh, uh, Sandy got a call from somebody that she was she had known, and they said we've got four snakes in our in our outbuilding here. Could you come get them? Mm. So she called me. So I went and I got them and I I picked them up and it was winter time. So I we took them over to Sandy. Sandy has a room that we put the rescued winter snakes in so that they can hibernate through the winter and then we release them in the spring and that's the same year that i got bit interestingly enough so um i came back i came back from san diego after having my bite and had talked i i talked to the owner of the property and i i said can can i put paint on them and just let them go see what they do "Ah, i suppose whatever you know blah 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 they weren't that big of a threat so I had to I had to paint all four of these snakes with my one hand. <laughs> I hadn't even I hadn't even had the surgery yet. I was oh, just right. I just had the uh, the infected hand. Can you just dip the the rattles in paint? You could, but again, you have to immobilize the snake in some way to shape or form to keep it from biting you uh, while yeah. you're doing this. Right, so I've right. I've have d- devised a technique that I do for my. Um, I used to have my hat technique for the snakes in the field, but I have a new technique that I use for the my Western Diamondback den over here. But I wonder if you could do uh, luminescent paint. You see them at night. Virtually any kind of paint would work, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's the range of a snake? If I find a snake under that rock over there, does it live its whole life around here, or do they move around? The snakes that I study here, the banded rock and the ridge nose, I think I've found... And this is one of the problems I mentioned earlier. You find the snake pregnant, but you don't see them the next year. So how do you know where they've gone? They keep coming back, but you don't know where they've gone. So when I first started doing this, I was finding several snakes that I had pregnant here and mating someplace else. So that sort of became the, the range. And that's about a half mile mm. on a 20, 24-inch snake. Mm. Now, one of the first studies that I read on prairie rattlesnakes he is describing, they put transmitters in these snakes, and he's describing a large male that left the den site and crawled six miles 
to another place and then started feeding and then spent the summer doing its thing in whatever it was. But it went six miles and they trapped all along that to see if there were rodents and things that he could eat. And they were there. Hmm. He had no desire to eat. He needed to get to wherever he was going first. And then there was kind of a rule. I don't really think it was stated in the book, but in reading about reading the book, I kind of got a, a, a generalized measurement in my head of about one mile per every foot of length of snake is what they would comfortably cover, whether that's mm. an entire summer's roaming mm. or the length of their range. Mm. Uh, I don't really know, but but it seems something like that. They can move great, great distances. And there are no migratory species of snakes, are there? I mean, they, they don't summer in the desert and then go up into the mountains in the no not no not not yeah. to that type of a level yeah that would be you know i i've i i talked to a guy that was studying speckled rattlesnakes in phoenix and he said that they were studying this population on the top of this cliff like up there yeah they'd go up and they'd find the snakes up there they never found them drinking ever hmm. until they put transmitters in them and now every night I mean, only at night, not every night, yeah. but only at night, they'd come all the way down a 300-foot cliff to drink and go all the way back up again. Right. Wow. And they drink with that tongue? Do they do it like cats? Not or they with a tongue. It? No, it's, a, um, it's the way our throat works. There's a musculature in the mouth that closes off. It, it takes a mouthful of water, closes off the front, and then squeezes it down the throat uh, by sealing the front and then compressing right. the rest of it as it goes. That's, that's the way our, our throat works. Oh, okay. it, work, it squeezes it down. Right, right. Yeah. Fascinating. Hey John, thank you for doing this, man. Uh, cool. This is this is this is fascinating. This I, is excellent. I'm glad. Thanks. I'm glad I took Dorothy's advice. Thank you, Dorothy. <laughs> thank you, Dorothy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got so much knowledge. You know, it, it's you got to you got to get it out there in one way or another. This is probably one of the easier yeah. ways. Yeah. I know you published that uh, that chapter. Do you do other writing? No. Well, I've written a few things. I've done some experiments. Uh, one of the I don't know if you want to keep talking. Sure. Yeah, one yeah. of the. Uh, one of the things I discovered about Rigino's rattlesnakes, like I said, they're very hard to find. Uh, when I first came here, it took me the three years before I found my own first one. I was with my girlfriend, Claire, and she found one each of the first two years we were here, but I had never found any. And then finally that third year, I started finding my own, and I found a couple of youngsters. And one, one thing with rattlesnakes, they are born so that the very end of the tail is a structure that has bone inside of it, fused bone, and then a single scale that makes a cap, a case around it. And that whole thing is called the rattle matrix. And it's the skin from that that becomes a rattle segment every time the snake sheds. All the snakes that are born, they're born with a nice softly rounded tip to the end of the tail. And it's, it's, it's like a half moon structure. That's all you see of it. And that's called a pre-button. And then once they shed that skin, that segment does not stay on the snake it's the first one that they shed and it does not stay comes off with the shed because it's only a little half cup Mm. next time it starts becoming sort of an hourglass shape so there's a gripping surface Mm. there's a groove and and grabbers to hang onto that groove that button is sort of a gentle a shape rounded corners and square across the base where it attaches to the snake that's called the button i have never seen a button on a young ridge-nosed rattlesnake. And because they, 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 most snakes retain segments for s- several sheds, all the young snakes, most of the young snakes, the majority of young snakes less than two years old, are gonna have a button on the end of their tail. In, in, my, in my study, uh, that's about 80% of the young snakes still have the button on there. 
even if it's on the end of a string of rattles. Never had it on the ridge nose. So I started wondering what is going on with the ridge nose, what I am seeing. Say, after that, after that smooth button comes off and the next one comes off, they start forming a spike. There's a, there's a bone inside the, inside the matrix that is spiked at the tip. And so you're seeing this spike tip of the end of the rattles. And that tells you that the button is gone. He's lost some segments. Hmm. So I was always assuming that the snakes were losing segments somehow, and I was never seeing a button. Until one year, I finally got some good enough pictures. I had snakes, a shed snake that hung around afterwards so I could see it. And I got some photographs of this spiked button. Instead of the rounded button like the others, it's spiked. And so I started becoming fascinated with this. And I've, I've realized that there's probably two or three segments that all of the rattlesnakes would retain that the ridge nose never do. The first ones they don't retain. They keep, they keep coming off with the shed. And so I, I, I had a, a scientific collecting permit from the state at that time at Game and Fish. And I asked them permission to do a study. So I took four of the youngsters into captivity and raised them with the intention of keeping them two years and photographing the changing shape mm. of the matrix to mm-hmm. see what was going on. And I ended up doing that thing, and I wrote it up. I never published it. Um, part of the editors of this, this rattlesnake book, they were, they were kind of fascinated with it and said, this needs to be published. This needs to be, you know, we can, we can help you. We'll be co-authors. You'll still be the leading author. And I go, wait a minute, this meal's already been cooked. It just needs to be served. We don't need to have more authors in this. And I never heard from them again. So it was <laughs> obviously they were more interested in having their name on a published script than they were on having the information out. So, right. so I, 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 I don't, I, I don't care. I don't care about publishing. I don't have any need to do that. This is all me. I'm, I'm curious and I want to answer my own questions hmm. and that's fine. People like Melissa and Sandy, I share this information with because I like them and they're my friends and they're interested the same way I am. But th- this need, you know, there, there seems to be a need in our society that the, the public needs to know this. They have a right to, you know, bull, they don't. They have a right to go out and learn it themselves. Right. Just the way all humans have. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, transmission of knowledge is a good thing. It, it well, can in, yeah, be. in a way, th- this, this comes down to what I call the preacher. Yeah. Some of us are preachers, and they need to spread the word. And some of us aren't. Yeah. And I'm not a preacher. I'm I'm a. Yeah. I, I, I'm an individual. I'm a loner. You're more of a monk. Yeah. I'm I'm a monk. Yes. Yeah. I'm a monk, not a preacher. Yeah. Um, do you have a website or anything? I do not know. No way people can reach you. They just have to find. They would Dorothy. have to know my phone number or my or my uh, <laughs> email address. Yeah. If people write to me with with questions about snakes, can I forward them to you, or would that be a waste of your time? It, it's gonna be. It's gonna come down to yeah. It, it, basically, I'm gonna say it's a waste of time. Okay. All right. So your don't, questions, don't do it, your folks. curiosities, I will be glad to. I mean, if we stay in contact, right. I'll be glad to answer anything oh, you want to know. And if thank you want to pass that on to your people, that's fine. But I, I don't go. really want to get involved in you, doing that. You don't want to be. I the, don't need the more snake, friends. Snake guy. You don't I'm, I'm a loner. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I hear that. Thank you very much, John. Oh, you're very well. Appreciate it. Firm handshake. All right. Have you ever heard a more honest dude? I just love that. So refreshing. He is a monk, for sure. Uh, and, and one of the most beautiful things anyone's ever said to me was after we wrapped up and I was packing up the equipment and everything, he said to me, you know, if you want to write me an email every once in a while or come by and visit, that'd be okay. I don't need to exclude you from my life. And I thought, that's the way he welcomes a new friend into a circle very selective guy so i was very touched and honored by that and uh, i will definitely look him up 
when and if I'm in that part of the world again. All right, this is the part of the podcast where I do not place any ads. I do not ask you to buy anything. I do not ask you to do any damn thing you don't want to do. So just take a moment and think about how unusual that is. And this is, as always, the beautiful, wonderful, brilliant Carsey Blanton reminding us all that rattlesnakes or not, we're all going to die one day. Take care out there. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a It's a big deal if you want to be free. Say what you want to feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.